Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Casual Criminalist. As always, I am Simon, your host. Today's episode, Scrooge McDuck the Terrorist, brought to you by my writer, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis. This is an absolute beast. <laughs> Three hours. Dennis included a little comment at the front here from one of these things, say, uh, from one of the previous uh, videos, like a comment uh, on YouTube saying, from Arati, thank you if I'm pronouncing that right. Dennis, mate, can you please write a novel? I'm serious. <laughs> and so Dennis did. This is, it's 52 pages long. There's two, three pages, two pages, three pages of um, like a preamble. But it's basically a 50 page script. <laughs> We're going to be here a while. Settle in, relax. I hope you enjoy the show. If you're new here, welcome. The format, of course, is um, I've never read this before. Dennis has essentially written me a book, and I'm going to sit here for probably the better part of my workday when you include breaks and everything, um, and uh, and read this book to you. Maybe it'll take more than one day. Let's find out. Let's jump in. Crime. There's a lot of faces. Yet upon closer inspection, most of them look terrifyingly human. For something strangely captivating about the macabre beckoning us to explore. For some, it's the thrill of the chase, the challenge of piecing clues together, the satisfaction of seeing justice served. But sometimes we find ourselves magically drawn to outlaws and villains for reasons that are not so easily explained. Yeah, and sometimes it's just because people are sick. Like sometimes i'll be like yeah i'm gonna skip over the bit where he's where where the person's removing people's eyes and inserting them into their butts and then taking them out and eating them i made that up don't quite know how or where the fuck i got that from but it's like I, i'll skip over that bit because i'll be like i didn't need to read that and uh, i don't think you need to people will be like simon read the disgusting bits simon i want to i can't believe you cut that out <laughs> i'm like oh this channel isn't for you you sicko we're here to entertain not to heal as i always say uh less less sore and more csi this applies not only to true crime stories but also to fictional ones we root for walter white dexter morgan and tyler durden with sincere admiration utterly oblivious to the fact that by idealizing them we've missed the point of the plot entirely uh yeah i i haven't seen fight club in a really long time i i, I definitely with with um dexter dexter morgan the, the the serial killer who kills the bad guys I was like, I was rooted for him hard through that show. With uh, Breaking Bad, I rooted for Walter White at the beginning, and then very quickly I didn't, because he became a monster. Like, no one was rooting for Walter White by the end of that show, were they? Surely not. You were just like, I hope he either gets killed or his cancer comes back and kills him. <laughs> and that sounds like, I hope his cancer comes back and takes him away from the world, is a phrase that should never be uttered. But in Walter White's case, I was like, oh my god, come on, come on, come on. Come on, he deserves it. He became a monster. This is not necessarily because we approve of their actions, but due to a faint glimmer of recognition. Oh yeah? <laughs> I don't know about Walter White. Walter White more than like Dexter Morgan. My desire to kill anybody is pretty much zero. But my idea, desire to become a meth kingpin? Well, uh, let's talk about that. Their primal desire for violence and destruction still lurks beneath the paved surface of civilization, and even though this force rarely erupts, we can sometimes feel its tamed movements in the uncharted trenches of our own psyche. It is with this uncanny blend of horror and self-observation that we peer into the true crime abyss, leaving us wondering if the difference between the perpetrators and ourselves 
is truly that profound. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes it's like, oh, okay, this person did this because of that. I'd be like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I could put myself in that position. Like, I don't know. This like, I feel like on one episode, I was like, yeah, I could kill someone if necessary. And people were like, whoa, Simon, steady on. And I'm like, is that so unusual? Like, there's definitely situations where it would be like, people do this every day, like, legally, in like wars and shit. And it's like, yeah, if you're in that position, I'm pretty sure I could do that. Like, and if you think you can't, you probably could because, like, the military and stuff, really good at training you to to be able to kill people it's kind of what they do there was something i don't i don't want to butcher the facts too much but i think i made a video about this once there was until like the mid 20th century i think it was after world war ii soldiers were really bad at killing other people they'd be great with guns they'd be good at all of this stuff but when it came to killing someone they were like oh no i don't like that that's another person and so what they did is they started changing the targets in target practice to cutouts of people and it made it much easier and the soldiers became much more effective at killing people and i think i think this was an american specific example but i think vietnam became the first war where this kind of post indoctrination of shooting at targets of people rather than just circular targets became a thing i'm sure i'm butchering these facts but it was like a crazy statistic jump of how many people were willing to kill people after just like changing what the targets looked like because the military is really good at getting people to kill people <laughs> what a what a genius insight simon well done and when the credits of yet another episode roll we may be left with the loki impression of having learned something about ourselves, subdued and sealed away by the much greater force that is our morality i mean you're the one watching the guy who has literally 22 writers locked up in his basement for entertainment purposes you're in no position to disagree dennis we've talked about this don't mention the basement you've got to mention that you're free and happy and living on the outside dennis come on am i right dennis at first glance this episode unfurls the career of a terrorist an out-of-control mastermind driven by the lowest of motives toying with human lives as though they were entirely worthless i'll report on arguably the most notorious crime series of post-war germany committed by a twisted soul that could have gone down in the annals as a disgrace but let me emphasize the important part here he could have he actually became a national hero instead i just recorded an episode i can't remember what it was and it was titled like oh it was the chopper reed episode <laughs> that david wrote for me and david lives in australia and he was like this guy's like revered and i finished that episode being like yeah he's a piece of shit, isn't he <laughs> and apparently he's beloved in australia as an outlaw and i'm like yeah that's because he told like a really good fictitious story of his life but the guy's a douche or he was he uh he got he he died i think it was cancer in the end of going or something i think he drank so much his liver died that was it his liver died and he got like cirrhosis not cancer is cirrhosis cancer is that a type of cancer probably not right that's just when your liver gets all ruined because you drank too much this is the story of the most cunning most intelligent offender we've covered on this channel so far his genius being reminiscent of an over-the-top movie character even though this is a truthful account of real events every other paragraph will feel like a hollywood screenplay yet the deeper we delve into this roller coaster of a case the more you'll realize this episode is actually all about you also as an unexpected detour from our usual narrative journey we're not dissecting the past we're confronting it head-on for the first time on the casual criminalist i personally scored an exclusive interview with the elusive mastermind himself who despite now leading a secluded life agreed to share his side of the story with us oh this is cool dennis sent me a box hold on he sent me a copy of this dude's autobiography um which is entirely in german <laughs> so i won't be reading this later and uh, a signed photo of the dude i already like him <laughs> it's in it it's also in german but this is still very cool i i didn't crease this dennis i'm sorry the postal service creased it 
I don't know why. The box was quite, quite beat up. It was an experience, to say the least. Easily the weirdest encounter of my entire life. And I say this as someone who was once lectured about Japanese rope bondage by a nun at an airport cafeteria. <laughs> Okay, I dare propose a wager. Over the course of the next few hours, you'll carve out a vivid image of this perpetrator and forge your own moral verdict about him, and you will feel somewhat certain about your conclusions. Yet once I reveal his utterly surprising response to one specific and very basic interview question, I assure you any initial conclusions will be upended in an instant. Depending on your interpretation, this might very well be our first episode, where the culprit is genuinely the good guy. Okay, let's see. I feel a little bit biased because I've got his autobiography, he signed this thing for me, but I'll try and be impartial. <laughs> okay, let's go. Scrooge McDuck greets his nephews. Hamburg, Germany. 1922. A foreboding calm cloaked the street as if the boulevard of shuttered shops and closed restaurants had been paralyzed with sudden anticipation. No footsteps echoed through the night. No voices betrayed the presence of any nearby pedestrians. Only the distant noise of passing cars broke the silence every once in a while. But if someone had been there to witness the moment, they would have detected a certain unease tugging at their attention. The flimsy piece was deceitful and vibrant to the touch. A premonition of something vast hung heavy in the atmosphere as a sinister pulse wormed its way through the towering facades flanking the street. You could hear it emerge from the golden shop windows where high-end household items were flaunted visible to all, yet out of reach for most. The insidious ticking noise was not a metaphor. It emanated from a makeshift pipe bomb hidden in the housewares section of Hamburg's car start department store. <laughs> the good guys put a pipe bomb in a department store, Dennis. <laughs> it's not a strong start for him. I also do feel like I'm reading a novel. I feel like this is this is how novels sound in my head when I read them. At the stroke of 1am. <laughs> I don't know why. It's like that very like novelly voice. The hour hand of a mechanical timer met with an electrical contact, igniting a dance of destruction. Pinpoint sparks shot up from the cellophane wrapping, setting off a series of electrical discharges that raced through the wirings. The moment they reached the black powder core, a resounding boom echoed across the desolate aisles, like a gunshot starting a race against time. The blast upended shelves, cracked floor tiles, smashed hundreds of expensive porcelain items, and sent their fragments flying like artillery shrapnel. The deafening pressure wave reverberated through the corridors, leaving nothing behind but a trail of destruction, debris, and streaks of pulverized glass that drifted slowly to the ground. And then, after the deep rumble had wafted up and down the walls a couple of times, silence settled in again. But not for long. Within minutes, the sounds of sirens heralded the arrival of first responders from every direction. In a flash of red and blue, police cars, fire engines, and ambulances converged on the mall, and just like an orchestra, each section played its part in perfect sync. Dennis, mate, this could be a book. Uh, I feel like this is, this is, it's very, very nice. Like all of these metaphors are so thought out. I feel like I'm genuinely reading a book. To keep onlookers at bay, the anti-terror squad swiftly set up a perimeter around the Karstadt complex and just outside the police cordon, paramedics stood ready and prepared for the worst. At the same time, a phalanx of firefighters charged into the smoke-choked building, their faces etched with determination and concern as they scanned every corner for signs of human victims. Yet, despite a backdrop ripped straight out of a movie, the more pressing concerns were quickly allayed. As it turned out, the building had been utterly empty at the time of the attack, devoid of even the most solitary night janitor. There was no cleaning crew scheduled for that night, and the temporary workers assigned to restock the shelves weren't due to arrive several more hours. With a deep sense of relief, the experts also confirmed that the damage, while considerable, did not pose any threat to the structural integrity of the building. The tableware section had indeed been reduced to a wasteland, 
Yet the building itself was virtually unaffected. And so, once any immediate dangers had been dispelled, the real investigation began with a late-night phone call, summoning one of Hamburg's most capable investigators to the scene. As Detective Michael Delecki's car glided through the city minutes later, his piercing blue eyes remained focused on the road ahead, and his calm face betrayed the extraordinary wisdom that he'd amassed through his accelerated career. As the chief investigator of Hamburg's police, Delecki wore his authority with the same ease as his neatly pressed suit, a testament to the balance he had struck between the demands of his job and the compassionate nature that defined him. This is, it's like a movie, Dennis. I'm like, ah, oh, it's, it's like, I am imagining this playing out like a movie in my mind. This should be a movie. Is this a movie in Germany? At this point in his life, he had been quite the public figure. The media had taken to calling him the genius every once in a while, and not without reason. His ability to unravel even the most twisted and convoluted of cases was the stuff of noir folklore, and his file of awards and commendations could paper the walls of his office, so to speak. The air was still stained with the acrid tang of explosives when Delecki arrived. From the outset, the prospects were looking grim. The forensics team painted a bleak picture of their findings, or rather, a lack thereof. No eyewitnesses, let alone suspects, no fingerprints on the bomb's components. It is amazing how, like, a bomb can go off. And the police will be like, yeah, we'll find the pieces. And we'll place it back together, like a jigsaw puzzle. And then, maybe we'll get some fingerprints off them. And it's like, it was a bomb! It literally blew up! And even though rudimentary DNA analysis was a tool available in 1992, any traces of biological material would have been incinerated anyway. The security cameras had been skillfully dodged by the person who had placed the explosive device during the previous day, and for all they knew, the culprit might as well have been a ghost. A fast-paced tide of updates ebbed and flowed, each incoming report as illuminating as a match in the Mariana Trench. It seemed as if the case had reached a dead end before it had even begun. On the other hand, Inspector Delecki felt as if he was missing something blindingly obvious. His subconscious mind tried to point his attention towards a certain memory, but surely he was just fooling himself. Being a man of facts, he decided to disregard his gut feeling for now. I feel like I'm a man of facts. Like, definitely. I, my logic side of the brain works overtime compared to the other side. But that gut feeling about stuff is often not like, oh, it's it, that's not like the opposite of logic. I feel that that's that feeling you get about something because you have so much knowledge not that i have like some super knowledgeable brain but it's like you know when you've accumulated knowledge about something and then you have a feeling about it it's not just completely unfounded it's like all of that knowledge is like in the back of your mind and it's like subconsciously pushing you towards one decision or another you know what i mean like that um there's a book about this like the chunked knowledge and stuff about the chess masters where it's like they they make the moves even though they're not really aware of why it's quite so good their brains like working subconsciously on why it's so good you know what i mean lost in those thoughts he ran his finger across the film of ash and cinder the blanket of the floor in his experience the absence of evidence could sometimes speak volumes as well so his mind began to inventory everything that seemed to be conspicuously absent first and foremost human victims bomb technicians had quickly been set to reverse engineer the triggering mechanism confirming the chosen time frame was neither a technical fluke or a matter of luck but a deliberate choice by whoever designed it yeah i mean if that if that happens i think my first feeling as a cop would be oh the timer went off at the wrong time they said it for 3 a.m instead of 3 p.m like when the store be heaving like if someone places a bomb like a terrorist assuming a terrorist is a pipe bomb they generally want to kill people not just blow up a department store but the fact that that was deliberate super interesting there was that there was that famous story where there was some terrorists somewhere and they set the timers like they, they they got the time zone wrong or something so they set it by like the wrong time zone and then they were going to like go to they were they were suicide bombers they were going to go or they weren't suicide but they were go, they were going to place the bomb somewhere and it went off an hour early and blew them all up <laughs> it's like 
fucking good. Murder, or even attempted murder, could therefore be ruled out, and good old terrorism appeared rather unlikely as well, as violent extremists typically strived for maximum carnage. Then again, cast out wasn't just a random chain of malls, not in the least. For centuries, the company stood synonymous with a lifestyle of economic pride, national wealth, and opulence. The brand's name carried a rich tapestry of historical significance and symbolism that almost reached back to the birth of Germany itself. This sounds like uh, Harrods or Selfridges, right? What do you have in America? What's like, what's the Harrods of America? Like, I feel like it's in New York, right? You got that big shopping street? Is it Fifth Avenue? Something like that? Is there some like big store that's like super nice and they have all this cool sh inside? It's really expensive. Good deli. <laughs> Ever since the first emperor had been crowned, Karstadt would gladly align itself with those who currently held the reins of power. If you know anything about European history, then you're probably aware that this is not necessarily a good thing. In other words, I don't know, it's a business. It survives. Like, uh, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. You don't wanna take it too far. You don't wanna be like IBM. <laughs> It's like, why are you working on IBM? Oh, we're working on a system to document the Holocaust. Oh, <laughs> okay. That was IBM, right? <laughs> I don't want to get it wrong and shout IBM out for doing something horrible. I'm pretty sure it was IBM, allegedly. In other words, Karstow was an obvious target for several types of political extremists. If it came down to that, Adelecki concluded they should receive a confession letter shortly. The first light of dawn had barely crept over the horizon when the task force got their assumption confirmed. A cell of radical anarchists publicly claimed responsibility for the attack. According to their statement, the bomber had been intended to protest Western consumerism. Only a few years prior, the same group had carried out a similar attack in an empty office building, lending their words a sheen of credibility. <laughs> this is so stupid. How are you going to protest Western consumerism by setting off a bomb? Yeah, yeah, it's really going to do a lot to stop people f***ing shopping. Well done. It's just insane. Like, and they did it in an office building? <laughs> not even a shop? Yeah, by the date after another letter arrived at the Karstadt branch, this one not only contained a written message, but also a drawing of a custom metal piece that had been used in the bomb's construction, proving the authenticity of this author beyond any doubt. Therefore, authorities directed all their attention towards the new one. The contents were remarkably straightforward. In rather plain language, the sender demanded money. No socio-philosophical outpourings, no political stipulations. The request was as austere as it was simple. Give me a million marks, or there will be another explosion in a different Karstadt store, but one way more powerful. And there's a note here, a German mark was the currency before the introduction of the euro. I remember this. I remember going to Germany when there were German marks. I can't remember quite what... The, I think you got three German marks for every one pound. Feels about right. This must have been in the early 2000s, late 90s. We used to go... We'd, we'd have this crazy school trip every year. We would go to the German Christmas markets in Aachen, which I think is in West Germany somewhere, but it would be a day trip. So we'd get on a bus at like three in the morning. That bus would cross the channel We'd drive to the Christmas market in Arken, spend like the afternoon or the day in Arken doing the Christmas markets and buying shit, and then we'd drive back and get back at like midnight. It was like a day trip to Germany. It was really far, and we'd do it like every year. I think from like years one to four of my school, so from like 12 to 16, something like that. Every year we took, every year that I had to learn German, which I now don't speak at all. <laughs> I know that Schmetterling means butterfly. Uh, sorry, so coincidentally, 1 million marks from 1992 is pretty much equal to 1 million US dollars today when adjusted for inflation. That makes everything very easy. So he wants a million dollars, does he? If the company was going to agree to pay the ransom, they were asked to place an ad in a daily newspaper stating this cryptic sentence. Scrooge McDuck greets his nephews. They would then receive further instructions. As Delecky perused the letter for the umpteenth time, he was once again assailed by an uncanny sense.
sense of deja vu. The course of events vaguely mirrored what had happened four years prior. Even though this mental connection was more of an instinct than a logical conclusion, everything felt strangely reminiscent of that one cold case, widely regarded among the most embarrassing blunders in German police history. Could it be him again? Was the unknown perpetrator the same mastermind who fooled the police back in 1988? Yes. It must be him, Zalecki contemplated, as his adrenaline levels spiked through the roof. Yet he decided to keep this suspicion under wraps until he had the hard evidence to support his hunch. Of course, the note was also scrutinized by an armada of profilers, and indeed they quickly arrived at conclusive verdicts, which would certainly have been helpful to Detective Delecki if those dead-sure assessments had not directly contradicted one another. In the realm of crime novels and movies, there is the common trope of law enforcement never ever bending to the demands of extortionists. Any fan of the genre will find the mantra all too familiar. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Yeah. <laughs> Except governments negotiate with terrorists and like blackmailers all the time. Yet in reality, this concept could be further from the truth. Simon recently released a Today I Found Now video about the topic in case you're interested. God, that doesn't feel so recent. When was that? <laughs> I don't even remember it. But here's a quick summary. Most governments and law enforcement agencies do have some kind of codified rule that precludes any kind of negotiation with criminals and terrorists as a means of deterrence. Yet, it is a very open secret that these principles are constantly being breached for obvious reasons. Yeah, it happens all the time. Isn't like prisoner exchanges like a classic example with that? Like, like the Russians aren't... The Russians are arguably not terrorists. <laughs> and they did that prisoner exchange where they got that, that basketball player, the, the woman who got arrested for like having weed or whatever, and they exchanged the... F merchant of death for her so i'm like that sort of negotiation goes on all the time i'm not saying like that that's negotiating with terrorists but it's like yo you got the merchant of death and in exchange america got a basketball player who got arrested for having a little bit of weed on her or something it wasn't wasn't it even a, a frame up or something first of all we need to consider cast out's image which was like a picasso painting not that good at second glance. <laughs> so harsh. I will spare you the details. Let's just say uh, I paid compensation to the Jewish community in the late 1940s. You fill in the blanks. Executive management was hellbent on not appearing like a bunch of sociopaths who would put avarice before human life, a clever strategy sometimes called public relations. Reportedly, they not only offered to pay the ransom out of their own pockets, but they also considered adding a little tip to the requested sum at some point just to make sure the elusive monster was entirely satisfied, not even as a trap to catch the man behind the curtain, but simply to fulfill his demands. They basically begged Detective Delecki to simply let them comply, though there are sources contradicting this notion. I mean, this is all well and good. But that really encourages terrorism. It's like, yeah, yeah, we just paid it. We were happy to pay it. <laughs> you just be like, yeah, so I didn't I didn't set off a bomb, but I'm going to. Like, you just like vague threats. And I only want 10 grand. So come on, let's go. Give me my marks. But more importantly, extortionists are rather stupid on average, meaning they will often screw up when given the opportunity. The German Special Operations Unit reports that nearly all police-guided cash handovers result in the extortionists' arrest, a trend echoed globally. <laughs> Nearly all? How dumb are these people? The worst case scenario of a criminal escaping with the money is, is statistically negligible, but let's insert an almost for foreshadowing purposes. The decisive factor, however, only discernible to an expert investigator, lay in the date on the ransom note stamp, showing it had been sent off before the bomb's detonation. Basically, every single extortionist in the history of recorded criminology had made their demands only after the leverage had taken effect. They accounted for the possibility of failure. What if the bomb had failed to detonate? What if it had been discovered and diffused hours ahead of the scheduled time? But this person had no such contingency, no concept of defeat. They were either a full-blown narcissistic psychopath 
or they'd done this before. Both possibilities made it exponentially more likely that they were willing to follow through with their threats. After weighing the various factors, it was ultimately decided to comply with the request and respond in the desired manner, so the agreed-upon signal graced the very next issue of the local newspaper. Scrooge McDuck greets his nephews. It read in bold, black ink, an innocuous sentence laden with heavy significance for only a small circle of insiders. Then again, what is the meaning of that phrase? Moving forward, the media will start referring to the nameless extortionist exclusively by Scrooge, and he will gladly accept the name for himself. So in case you're not an expert on the lore of Donald Duck comics, here's a quick rundown. Scrooge was actually the rich dude, right? He has that giant tower of money. <laughs> so I was always like, that's awesome, and he just swims in it. And then there was that amazing Family Guy sketch where Peter jumps into like his own giant pile of money, and he's like, he breaks all of his bones, and he's like, oh no, money is a solid, not a liquid. <laughs> Amazing. Donald Duck is a wealthy, anthropomorphic duck-shaped capitalist pig created by Disney. He's a duck, Dennis, not a pig. Known for his insatiable thirst for wealth and his ruthless pursuit of profit, this bourgeois enemy of the working class first appeared in a comic strip written and drawn by Carl Barks in 1947, and he serves as a child-friendly manifestation of selfishness ever since. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was like, awesome, he's rich. <laughs> Message heart. <laughs> Took away the completely wrong message. Not like that guy's a capitalist pig, but I'd love a tower full of money. But beneath all of his superficial riches, he's also shown to have a heart of gold. The essence of his character seems to be the following insight. There's more to life than money. Scrooge McDuck learns this lesson in every other comic that he's involved in, only to forget this newly acquired wisdom by the time the next comic is published so he can learn it all over again. Even though he is a portrayal of reckless greed, he is not a glorification of such traits, but a critique. Yet if that is the case, why choose him as an alias for your very reckless and greedy extortion games? Well, we'll come back to this question later, but feel free to speculate in the meantime. Time. Spoiler alert, you're as wrong as all of those aforementioned profilers were. My guess would be it's like just irony. I, I guess I'm wrong because I'm not a profiler. <laughs> the profiler's got it wrong, so I'm also going to be wrong. But it's just like, you know, took away, like like me, took away the wrong message. <laughs> Starving. <laughs> but it's nice to have a giant tower full of money. A small side note Scrooge McDuck is called Dagobert Duck in Germany. I decided to go with the international equivalent for clarity and consistency, yet strictly speaking, the mysterious extortionist was using the German Dagobert Duck. Keep this in mind if you want to decide to further investigate the case after watching this video. Or if you're German, there's the biography? Uh, autobi autobiography? Biography? Oh no, it's in German, I can't find out. I think it's, uh, Arno Funk wrote this, so I get it's, guess it's a biography. Wait, did we find out this dude's name yet? No, maybe this dude's name is Arno. Oh, I still don't know! <laughs> I think it is Arno. I'm trying to read this dude's signature and I think it says Arno Funke, so I hope that doesn't spoil anything. <laughs> Over the next few days, Delecki and his team of investigators looked out for Scrooge's reaction with a queasy feeling. Would he reply through the newspaper? Was he going to send another letter by mail? What exactly were they even searching for? They had been working non-stop on this case for days now, grasping at every straw to no avail, and the weight of it was beginning to show. A few policemen had even started studying Donald Duck comics just in case. Despite his... <laughs> be like, yeah, yeah, what you did? I'm reading comics for, uh, research. <laughs> Despite his reputation for mental fortitude and thriving under pressure, the case had quickly taken its toll on Inspector Delacky. Sleep had turned into an elusive luxury, and excessive amounts of bitter coffee made both his mind and his heart race non-stop. But among all those uncertainties, there was one thing they somehow knew for sure. Many stages of escalation lay ahead of them. My words can hardly convey just how spot-on their instincts were about that. 
The radio silence dragged on for two seemingly never-ending weeks. To everyone's surprise, when Scrooge finally did reach out, he did so by simply calling the car start service hotline from a public phone booth. While this method of contact ranked low on the list of expectations, the task force had fortunately prepared for this eventuality. An officer, rather than a random employee, answered the call as a recording device captured each syllable for later analysis. Scrooge obviously did not take the risk of engaging in a personal conversation. Instead, he played a tape recording of an extremely distorted and pitch-shifted voice, relaying yet another set of instructions. The barely intelligible message guided investigators to a specific luggage locker at Hamburg's main railway station. Afraid of finding another explosive in there, the emergency services sped off with no delay. Yet when the bomb squad carefully opened the locker and inspected its contents, they discovered something else entirely, a mechanical contraption of metal and mystery, whose purpose was difficult to tell at first glance. Oh my god, if I was the bomb squad, I'd be like, ah, oh, it is a bomb. <laughs> Like, you're looking for a guy who plants bomb and so you open a locker in a public place and there's a mechanical device in there. You're like, ah, oh, sh**. Being the bomb, being the bomb squad's got to be fucking terrifying. Your job is to just go up in that big suit and deal with bombs and possibly get blown up. But I mean, how useful is that big suit if a bomb goes off? It's a bomb! Imagine a backpack with an elaborate metal chassis and magnets attached to the rear side. Neither the explosive experts nor Inspector Delecki have ever seen anything like it before. Fortunately, the ominous object came with a short user manual of sorts, written in the familiar font of Scrooge's typewriter. The ominous device was a self-developed high-tech solution for secure money delivery the letter explained a self-developed high-tech solution for secure money delivery what is this it instructed police officers to place the money into the bag-like component and fasten the zip tightly once the cash was safely stowed inside they were supposed to attach the entire apparatus to the rearmost carriage of a specific train the magnets were aligned precisely to fit the outer coupling mechanism the ingenious twist inside the metal box was, box was a clock mechanism very similar to the one that triggered the bomb previously oh it's gonna drop it somewhere isn't it it's gonna deactivate the magnets like electromagnets or something at a specific point and drop it along the line where the guy will be waiting but instead of setting off an explosion it would release the hooks holding the bag component at a certain time the money-filled container would therefore drop onto the rail bed at some secret point during the train's journey at a predetermined location known only to scrooge himself who would merely gather the spoils from the tracks and vanish like a wisp of smoke on the backside scrooge provided the exact train they were going to use it was an intercity express named kathy colvitz scheduled to travel from Hamburg to Berlin. And there is a note here. Every train in Germany is named after an important person. Kathy Kovitz was a painter and sculptor and one of the most famous German artists of the 20th century. I always feel it nice when you're on it. feels so fancy when you get on a train. It's not like, you know, the A17. It's like the Kathy Kovitz or the Albert Einstein. You're like, wow, look at this. Scrooge's plan seemed completely ridiculous, but undeniably brilliant. You see, the two cities were almost 300 kilometers apart. There was no way to deploy officers across the entire route. Teleki's gaze darted back and forth between Scrooge's device and the policemen who surrounded him in eager anticipation of orders. The train in question was due to depart in a couple of days. Maybe there was enough time left to gain the upper hand after all. The police technicians found themselves tasked with a new objective. Reverse engineer the gadget, figure out the timer's configuration, and then calculate the location at which Scrooge would be waiting for the cash. It was his engineering expertise against that of the entire police force, which does sound like an easy win on paper doesn't it it does i mean i can think of ways that you could do this now where you could do it like with encryption and stuff where they wouldn't be able to break into it and figure it out but is this a mechanical device i mean surely how can you i mean i don't i wouldn't know how to possibly hide something like that in a mechanical device as the nerd set about analyzing the device delecky and the head of operations once again exchanged weighted glances there was no denying the truth scrooge was the very same criminal who had outsmarted the police 
four years prior. The modus operandi was more refined this time, but essentially identical. Could this be their shot at redemption, a chance to rectify a humiliating defeat? Though Delecki was not directly involved with the catastrophic failure from 1998, he took the challenge somewhat personally. The entire German law enforcement had been outsmarted by a criminal genius, humiliated, ridiculed, and relieved of half a million German marks. The memories of this bitter defeat had haunted thousands of crime fighters ever since. Maybe this was their fateful opportunity to rectify a major slip-up. Oh no, I'll just be thinking, oh, it was really hard the last time, and now we're going to get taken again, and it's going to be for twice as much. The detective's sentimental contemplation was interrupted when the technicians announced a surprisingly swift breakthrough. Scrooge had made a grave error by simply recycling the design of the bomb's trigger mechanism, which was both familiar and rather simple to begin with. After unscrewing the box and ransacking the inner blend of wires and security and, and circuitry, sorry, they had discovered that everything was connected to a slightly modified alarm clock set for 5.52 p.m. This is way too obvious. This is way, way too obvious. Although Scrooge had disabled the display, they could easily reconstruct the alarm time. The detectives huddled around a map, feverishly calculating the precise location of the train at the moment of the drop. It was a mathematical conundrum everyone had encountered countless times during their school days, never imagining that one day it would be the key to potentially saving lives. The location they pinpointed was a minuscule village, barely a blip on the map, nestled 100 kilometers from the bustling city of Hamburg. Oh, you guys are getting taken for a ride. This was too easy. It's a red herring. The, it's the, maybe the train's just going to go all the way to the final destination where the guy just grabs it. <laughs> It just gets into the station and he's waiting there just to collect the money. It never drops off. Or he takes it at, like, before it leaves or when it pulls into a station, something like that. Or maybe that is, it will drop at that point. Yeah, that's what, that's okay. That's where I'm thinking what's going to happen. So this train is obviously going to stop several times along its 300 kilometer journey. And if there was no mechanism, the only point that he could collect the money would be when it pulls in to specific stations so the police would be stationed at every specific station along the route but by dropping it off at some point along the route at this tiny little village um the police are going to wait exclusively there so if i were the police at this point i would very much just in case station people at that tiny village where it's due to drop but also i would station police at every well one on the train looking out the back and then two also at every station right that's the that's the checking all the boxes plan at exactly 4:40 on the specified day kathy Corvitz roared out of hamburg's main station with the ominous device firmly attached to its rear members of the scrooge task force sped down the highway in unmarked cars hours ahead of the intercity express they mentally prepared for the inevitable arrest and their well-deserved moment of sweet sweet victory oh guys we're 10 pages in it's not happening they envisioned scrooge standing in the middle of nowhere nervously watching the tracks waiting for his ill-gotten gains to fall into his hands completely unaware of his impending doom. The cat and mouse game was building up to the climax. The team had arrived early, leaving them to stew in the seemingly indeterminable stretch of time before the big showdown. With the villagers ushered into their homes for safety, the assembled officers assumed they had in position, scanning the area for anything out of the ordinary. They slinked from one vantage point to another, ensuring every possible angle was covered. And then, when all preparations for the surprise party were completed, the suspense began. The moment, the minutes inched by and the trees shadows grew ever so slowly the policemen fixed their gaze on the tracks where their adversary was due to materialize at any moment now despite not being physically present himself delecki was filled with an overwhelming sense of tension as he anxiously awaited news from the field squad waiting back at the headquarters his thoughts drifted to 1988 when scrooge then still under a different name had pulled off a very similar plan successfully but not this time 
not again. The sun had dipped low in the sky by now, casting a golden hue over the surrounding field, but no trace of the extortionist was in sight. The small army of officers still hunkered down, hidden within the bushes and trees, but nothing happened. After a while, frustration and confusion crept in, eroding their initial confidence. Had they somehow gotten the drop site wrong? Maybe Scrooge had caught on to their plan and changed his mind. I mean, why are they why are they so sure that he's going to collect it immediately after the train goes past? This is going to be on the tracks. He could come by an hour or two later and collect it. He could come by days later and collect it, assuming that he doesn't think the police are onto him. Eventually, the train's headlights crested the horizon in the far distance. Kathy Colvitz approached the ambush spot at exactly 5.52 p.m., just as they had calculated. With a hiss of compressed air and squeezing brakes, the vehicle came to a halt. No suspicious figure appeared anywhere. The ensuing silence seemed to mock the investigators' confusion as they slowly began to understand that they were very, very screwed. The metal box was still dangling off the last carriage, but the bag of money was gone. The extortionist had outplayed them a second time, and now they stood there in the middle of nowhere, shaking their heads in disbelief. The trick was blindingly obvious. In a stroke of twisted genius, Scrooge had placed a second timer inside the box, completely concealed from view. The visible one was nothing more than a ruse, a decoy designed solely to lead investigators astray. The true mechanism had triggered mere minutes after the train left Hamburg. While the police officers were prematurely celebrating and getting into position for victorious arrest, Scrooge had already absconded with the money. Okay. That's uh, I, I think my plan's better. <laughs> Just go to a station and pick it up. Like, if you've got the decoy one in there and a real one, there's still the chance that they can discover the real one. I mean, they didn't, but they could have. As the reports reached Delecky back in Hamburg, he couldn't help but marvel at Scrooge's cunning. This was a game of chess played at the highest level, he thought, but it wasn't checkmate just yet. Scrooge may have eluded capture for now, but Delecky had set up a multi-layered trap on his own. Scrooge's arm alarm clock was fake. But so was the money stuffed into his bag. The game was just beginning. The money stuffed into the bag being fake. He's going to discover that very quickly, and then he's going to be like, oh, okay, I guess we're doing another bomb. <laughs> the Pursuit of Happiness In 1950, Arno Funke was born into a world that seemed determined to smother every spark within him. Growing up in Rudau, a rather primitive village in West Germany, his life was imbued with an aura of misery from the very moment he drew breath. Even though roughly five years had passed since Hitler's ballistic withdrawal from active politics, <laughs> the aftermath of the Third Reich continued to shroud the ravaged nation like an everlasting shadow. There was a deep-seated sense of guilt, shame, and remorse well earned by an awful lot of people. And for those who had staked their lives on opposition to the regime, the sheer scale of inhumane atrocities was still an unresolved trauma. The war remained vividly present to those who survived, with partially disfigured cities and occasionally bombed-out buildings serving as constant reminders. Within the time span of only 12 years, the Nazis had industrially murdered 11 million people and started a war that would cost 50 million more lives, and that's not even counting the 30 million deaths that would result from war-related disease and famine. It had been the single worst calamity in the entire history of our species, a magnitude of suffering beyond any human comprehension. I introduced the Pedro Lopez scale of evil in another episode, and just going by the number of fatalities, this scores a 30.3 million out of 10. <laughs> it is psychologically just impossible to truly grasp any of this, and yet we have a whole nation of people who, for the most part, actively or passively contributed to what had happened. And then, of course, 
the next disaster loomed on the horizon. Germany had been divided into two parts since 1949, and the extent of this rift was slowly dawning on both sides. While the western part, guided by Allied forces, made slow but steady progress in establishing a self-sustaining democracy, the eastern section seemed to slither from one dictatorship to the next, merely swapping the Nazi party as their oppressor for the Soviet Union. The potential for escalation was obvious to everyone from the beginning, and as we know today, this global conflict would eventually push the world to the brink of nuclear Armageddon. This was the joyful land of milk and honey into which Arno had been born, a depressing climate bound to leave its mark on the soul. Information about his formative years is pretty limited, compelling us to lean heavily on his autobiography. Ta-da! Along with his anecdotal tales, whose origins can't be definitively confirmed. I did my best to weave the individual data points into a coherent narrative, though this was only possible by applying a medium-sized dose of interpretation. The forthcoming section rests upon somewhat unstable ground, but I believe we can piece together a plausible framework from the scattered hints available. To my understanding, Arno was a very special child to begin with. It didn't take long for his parents to notice his strange and peculiar traits. As a toddler, Arno seemed solemnly withdrawn and introspective, ensconced within an invisible fortress that severed him from the world outside. He showed little to no interest in anything. Instead of reacting to voices or engaging with toys, his eyes stared blankly into the void, like a computer processing complex calculations behind a frozen user interface. There was no life sparking in his pupils, but an unfathomable intensity that scared his mother and angered his father. As Arno grew older, his parents remained hopelessly overburdened with his unusual habits, wondering whether they were raising an extraterrestrial. He would only talk when absolutely necessary, completely lose himself in the dullest things imaginable, and react in ways that were just off. Throughout his childhood, he struggled to make any friends. On the one hand, there were only a few peers of his own age living nearby, but on the other hand, communicating with anyone seemed to be an overwhelming challenge to Arno in general. Technically speaking, Rudol was an outskirt district of West Berlin, yet the distance to the actual city stretched so far that it was mostly seen as a separate village in its own right. Life there was rather simple and arguably a little backward even for the time. In the cluster of half-timbered houses and gardens, there was no running water, no sewage system, no continuous electricity supply, and with every little rain shower, the dirt roads transformed into quagmires. It's crazy how, like, times have changed. Like, no running water in Europe. 50 years ago. No, six, seven, seventy 70 years ago. It's pretty nuts. I mean, I guess there are places now, like, like, <laughs> yeah, I think about it. I have a little house in the countryside that doesn't have running water. It has a well with a pump. I mean, does that mean running water? It's like, there's, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's no, like, pipes serving it because that would be insane. So there's a, there's a well and you press a, you, there's a button and you turn it on when you arrive and it pumps water to the, is that running? Well, I guess that is running water, isn't it? Yet as Arno grew into school age, he found a lot to like about their surroundings. Amidst the bushes, forests, and mud pits, he would encounter one fun adventure after another, even though he continued to take them on alone. Arno was also fond of the desolate allure that emanated from an abandoned railway station south of Rideau, and aware of the profound influence trains would eventually wield over his life. In the pre-modern society of 1950, psychological deviations were often frowned upon and vastly misunderstood. People, even children, were expected to conform to societal norms, and if they couldn't, they were quickly labelled as abnormal outcasts that needed to be punished for their shortcomings. Arno's father lacked empathy and understanding for his son's unique needs. He deemed his behaviour indicative of a flawed character, a problem that he believed could only be resolved through physical discipline. Ah, yes. <laughs> Let's beat the weird out of him. Consequently, Arno faced regular beatings just for existing the way that he was. For the most part, his father tried to avoid Arno. He hated being reminded of his existence. But if he was somehow forced to deal with the child, 
He would often resort to violence. The young boy quickly figured out the pattern and how to escape it by not daring to exist in front of his father's eyes. For the lack of paternal love, he instead sought emotional connection with the nearby farm animals. The Funke family owned a chicken coop behind the house, whose feathery inhabitants quickly became Arno's dearest playmates. He would spend entire days just sitting among them, as if the hens understood his innermost nature better than humans ever could. One day, however, when the smell of dinner drew Arno into the kitchen, he became suspicious at the sight of the meat on his plate. He ran outside to count his friends, and to his shock, one of them was missing. His father found this reaction extremely funny at first, but when Arno flatly refused to eat his best buddy, he exploded with anger in the blink of an eye and spanked Arno into submission. Apart from assaulting his offspring, Mr. Funker pursued a wide range of other hobbies as well, such as drinking excessive amounts of beer, losing money in the lottery, or abusing his wife in front of his son. By the time Arno was ten, the situation had spiraled out of control even further, to the point where his mother just couldn't take it anymore. In early 1960, she made a life-changing decision for Arno and herself, starting a new life free from brutality by escaping to New Kohl, a working-class suburb in the western sector of Berlin. You might assume that a violent and possessive tormentor would make every effort to keep his punching bags in his clutches. Yet much to my surprise, Mr. Funke neither applied any force nor psychological pressure. Quite the opposite. His indifference towards his family apparently outweighed his seeming narcissistic impulses, so he was mostly fine with the decision and simply allowed them to go. Up to this point. Everything sounds like a bit of a parenting guide for those who seek to raise serial killers. But despite all of that, Arno would later describe these early years as the happiest in his entire life. From our perspective, urban Berlin may seem like the lesser of two evils, but according to Arno himself, it was decidedly not. Known for its vibrant art scene, gritty streetscapes, and winding alleys lined with trendy cafes and alternative restaurants, Newcon serves as one of the world's largest hipster hotspots in contemporary times. Yet when Arno ended up there in 1960, it was arguably even worse. <laughs> Between the rundown facades, it reeked of decay and poverty for miles around. <laughs> arguably even worse. The attitude among the locals was rough and governed by social tensions. Neighbors remained strangers, and everyone was drunk at all times. In a cramped and dismal corner of the city, the Funke family had taken up residence in an unassuming backyard hovel hidden from sight by a labyrinth, labyrinth of shadowy staircases. Arno found himself immersed in a world that bore no resemblance to his former life. Gone were the days of wandering through the woods, communing with the wildlife, and basking in the tranquil stillness of expansive crop fields. In their place, Arno now faced a grimy and treacherous metropolis. Yeah, I would think, if you're poor, right, it's better, isn't it better to like live in the country where you have a bit more space and there's less crime? and stuff and everything's just less expensive rather than in the city where everything's expensive and there's going to be crime and too many people and i don't know i'd always be like the country sounds way better and you can grow some of your own food you can have your own chickens that sounds way nicer i guess there's more opportunities in the city so you can get a better job and earn more money but then everything costs more i don't know does that make sense his surroundings were a gross mockery of nature. Trees had been replaced with soot-blackened chimneys. Chickens had given way to verminous rats. Lush meadows had been supplanted by foul-smelling landfill sites, and the gentle bird song had been drowned out by the relentless clatter of factory machinery. Arno felt suffocated by the oppressive brick structures that loomed above him, casting a pall over his young life. But soon, he would find that this Charles Dickens hellscape was only the beginning of his troubles. Mrs. Funker, a weary single mother toiling from dawn till dusk to put food on the table, was all too aware of the perils that lurked in the urban jungle beyond their doorstep. In order to shield her son from these dangers, she resorted to locking him away in his room, making him a prisoner in his own home. For reasons known only to her, she subjected him to this confinement not only during work days, but also on most weekends. Perhaps she was unnerved by his peculiar behavior, or maybe she was simply unwilling to face the reality of having a child she never wanted. 
a fact Arno was thoroughly aware of. In his autobiography, Arno recounted the crushing weight of boredom as the ultimate test of endurance, one that undoubtedly caused lasting damage to his mental health. Also, his isolation did certainly not help to improve his lacking social skills, but it did introduce him to a passion that would come to define him for the rest of his life art. The boy would spend countless hours hunched over a canvas, his hands a blur of motion as he poured his soul into each stroke of the brush. Through his artwork, he sought a fleeting respite from the drab darkness that threatened to swallow him whole. Despite his young age, Arno's talent for proportions and perspectives was undeniable, and some of his early works still survive as a testament to his prodigious skill. To me, an absolute layman, they look exceedingly impressive, but also very concerning. His motives clearly serve as a reflection of this inner struggle. Children locked behind prison bars, fences and barbed wire in front of meadows, teddy bears brutally pierced with iron spikes. <laughs> it sounds like the sort of thing it's like if you did that in school, the teachers would be like, So, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Whistler, have you um, considered your child seeing a, a psychologist? We just want to make sure everything's okay, because they keep drawing teddy bears with spikes through their faces. Ah, <laughs> uh, no! She seems so normal. <laughs> As time wore on, his paintings grew increasingly somber, a clear indication that while art may have slowed his descent into the abyss, it would neither halt nor reverse it. Not even the most opaque color could conceal the empty canvas within him. Mrs. Funker, though aware of her son's disquietening artwork, maintained her iron grip on his freedom. Arno's only reprieve from his confinement came in the form of brief trips to the communal toilet, which they shared with other tenants, and of course, he was allowed to leave for school. Arno attended the notorious Rutley School, a rather problematic institution to this day, plagued by violence and drugs among the students and resignation among the teachers. It had been a catch basin for those without prospects, and Arno blended seamlessly with this backdrop. By no means did he cause much trouble for his teachers. He attended the lessons impassively, often isolated himself to the last row, and constantly lost himself in his own imagination. In terms of academic performance, Arno navigated his early school years as if it was nothing. Failure was quite the norm in this school, yet he seemed to defy the odds. He moved effortlessly through any intellectual challenge, conquering test after test with an ease that belied his reserved manners. Languages, though, were never his strong suit. Arno struggled to wrap his mind around the nuances of both German and foreign tongues, but he managed to pass his exams with little more than a shrug nonetheless. Mathematics and the sciences, however, were a different story altogether. In these realms, his mind raced at the speed of light, drawing connections and solving problems that would have left his teachers gasping for breath if he paid any attention to them. Complicated formulas bent and twisted to his will, rearranging themselves into neat solutions before his eyes. Geometric patterns snapped into place as if guided by an invisible hand, and when he contemplated scientific experiments, a detailed three-dimensional model would materialize in his mind's eye as tangible as any object in the physical world. This assessment by the way, it was not based solely on Arno's autobiography. Other sources scientifically and reliably confirm his extraordinary intellectual abilities, and we'll have more on those a little bit later. Arno's life of boredom shifted dramatically the day he discovered the wonders of the library. Each day on his way home from school, he would load his arms with stacks of books, which he would exchange for new supplies the following day. Stories of adventure and fantasy held little appeal for him, as he rarely managed to emotionally connect with the protagonists. Instead, he found solace in the crisp, clear lines of non-fiction. Textbooks on technology, electronics, physics, and chemistry became his sustenance as he devoured them with a voracious appetite. As the weeks and months passed, his academic expertise grew to a level that was nothing short of extraordinary. And yet, this newfound knowledge did not bring him the pride or sense of accomplishment one might expect. Arno had no idea how other people functioned and what intellectual capacity corresponded to the average. Therefore, he failed to recognize that he was exceptional. 
For him, becoming an expert in basically every type of science was simply a way to fill the endless hours that stretched before him. His mind was a tempestuous sea, nonetheless roiling with feelings of worthlessness and despair that threatened to pull him under at any moment. A black cloud of emotional numbness dogged his every step, casting shadows on any glimmer of happiness that dared to pierce the gloom. But Arno's autodidactic pursuits came at a price. The more he focused on cramming the entire body of engineering wisdom into his brain, the less seriously he took school. Soon he had intellectually transcended so far beyond the reality of the classroom that he had completely lost touch with the topics the teachers discussed. The school's climate of self-abandonment had caught up with him at some point, even forcing him to repeat two years of school after failing most of his exams. This was, and is, common practice in the German educational system, even though scientific studies have repeatedly showed that it is among the worst things one could do to a struggling student. Really? To have them repeat a, a year but once if they do fail can they go on to the next year they don't know how to do stuff and then they're just going to be extra lost how how do you deal with that even i the author of this episode have been forced to repeat two of my school years somewhat ironically for failing my english exams <laughs> this is crazy dennis's english is better than mine i would have no idea that this was written by someone who didn't speak english as a first language and it's certainly much better than anything i could possibly write among other things yet here we are shout out to mr landstein my former english teacher who called me a hopeless failure instead of providing me with any kind of support he did anyway in fact uh, you know <laughs> funny parallels uh my my german teacher was kind of a, a bit of a in fact, this horrible experience was the catalyst that led me to pursue a career as a high school teacher myself, with the lofty intention of providing my students all the attention and care that was missing in my own educational journey. Unfortunately, within my first week of working at a school, I understood that the problem is not only the person in front of the classroom, it is the entire educational system that needs to be overhauled, perhaps even completely replaced. Not long after, I gave up on this career path. Yeah, the educational system is in for a hell of a shake-up though, isn't it? Like, this, um, chat GPT and stuff like you mess around with that and you you don't know if you don't understand something it will tutor you to understand it which is nuts like you can just be like i don't understand this can you help me learn it and it'll be like absolutely here's a lesson plan and you'll be like okay let's get going and it'll just get going it's crazy anyway arno did not care about failing school or about literally anything else regarding his future instead he was brooding about gloomy thoughts and unanswerable questions by the time he had turned into a teenager, he'd internalized the theory of being fundamentally broken, of having some kind of major defect in his head. Maybe there was a tumor growing in his brain, an insatiable black hole that exclusively feasts on positive feelings. At times, he struggled to remember what joy even was. I mean, it does sound like he has a flaw in his brain, but it sounds like the sort of flaw that can, like, be treated. Like, yeah, just, I, I mean, yeah. But unfortunately, this was the 1950s. As a young adult, Arno's entire life had devolved into a desperate pursuit for happiness, or not even necessarily happiness, but just any feeling at all. He dropped out of school at the earliest possible opportunity, which took away even the faintest semblance of orientation. Devoid of purpose, Arno aimlessly meandered through his days, observing the lives of others with the keen analytical eye of a scientist. He dissected the vibrant, bustling world that swirled around him, seeking to replicate the formula for happiness that had eluded him for so long. His theory? By mimicking the actions of those who appeared content, their joy might somehow seep into his own desolate existence. He lacked intuition on how to be happy, so he straight up copied the habits of others. I mean, <laughs> fake it till you make it. It's not bad, though. Like, there's that whole thing about, like, if you just smile, you'll feel better. And that sh works, dude. <laughs> you just be like, I feel miserable. You're just like, ah, oh, 
And then it's like, you do feel slightly better, don't you? It's like, hey, like I force myself to do that sometimes. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that. And you're like, okay, big smile, let's go. Arno strolled through public parks, indulged in culinary experiences, immersed himself in literary masterworks. He frequented pubs, reveled in the magic of the silver screen, marveled at the exhibitions of every museum that Berlin had to offer. Among the places he visited frequently was the Mall of the West, a sprawling temple of luxury, a glittering monument to opulence hailed as the pinnacle of human contentment. Arno never made a purchase, instead he observed the sea of smiling faces, hoping their attitude might someday rub, on, rub off on him. But it never did. In the evenings of these eventful days, Arno would go to bed without having felt anything, falling asleep to the same sinister thoughts that had haunted him since childhood. Again and again, he consciously decided to have a good time, but it only ever felt fake, forced, a hollow pantomime of genuine emotion. He was a robot unable to process the data of joy. Happiness was a foreign language to him, a concept he could describe only theoretically. The more he tried to do the right things in life, the more his soul withered away. However, Arno never harbored anger or envy. He believed the fault lay solely within himself, a malfunction in his inner workings for which no one else could be held responsible. The following years were a collection of even more false starts. Since nothing and no one could truly stimulate him anyway, he simply let himself drift. He embarked on a series of vastly divergent career paths, each one a vain attempt to find a place where he belonged. He dabbled in sign painting, seeking to harness his experienced hands, but the march of progress and the rise of automation had rendered his skill set entirely obsolete. Turning to the realms of entertainment, he briefly tried his luck as a disc jockey, reasoning that surely a fun profession would foster a fun disposition. Alas, his lack of musical aptitude doomed the endeavor from the outset. He would later drive a truck for a beverage company, because finding joy in simple things was a widespread phenomenon. Or at least he had heard about that. It didn't work for him. He then turned to manual labor, hoping that physical exertion would spark life within him. Yet his stints as a construction worker and a mechatronics technician, which is a real-world Simon, mechatronics, okay, don't know what it is, left him feeling just as empty as before. What is mechatronics? Look up. Technology, combining electronics and mechanical engineering. Well, there you go. Could have guessed that, couldn't I? No matter the job, Arno almost immediately grew apathetic. The monotony of routine chafed at his spirit, leaving him yearning for the freedom and expression that he found in the arts. It sounds like you need to be an artist, mate. I guess that's there's not a lot of money in that, is there? But you could, uh, I mean, have a crack at it at least. That seems to be something you do find joy in, like painting. So just work, drive the truck, and then paint. Like A lot of people do jobs they don't like so they can pursue their interests. My coffee is so cold. I've just been so absorbed in this story. I had a hot cup of coffee when this episode started, and now it is stone-ass cold. He tried time and again to break into the world of commercial creativity as a side hustle. Well, there we go. But each foray led to another failure. Photography offered a fleeting glimmer of hope for a while, but ultimately his innate shyness proved his undoing once more. He felt as if he was intruding on others' private moments with his lens in an unethical way, even though that was exactly what they paid him to do. Fate ultimately led him to a small car repair shop, where he found work as a spray painter. But it was not passion that tethered him there, but the friendship he forged with Heinz, his boss. Quite a big deal for him. This way, he could at least ease his all-consuming loneliness a little. But one must not draw any wrong conclusions. He was still beyond miserable. As he entered his mid-thirties, Arno's suicidal tendencies began to take the shape of concrete plans. In his imagination, he had already put an end to it countless times, but had never acted upon it in any way. Nonetheless, when Heinz was looking for a specific wrench one day, he instead discovered a genuine handgun and a single bullet hidden in Arno's personal tool drawer. That was not something people just had randomly lying around, as owning a firearm is a serious criminal offense in Germany. Heinz had been well aware that his employee was in pretty bad shape, but it was only now that he truly understood the extent of his suffering. Upon confronting Arno, the latter explained that he wasn't really planning on shooting himself anytime soon, he just wanted to keep all possible options open. Oh my god. <laughs> 
As I know I'm not planning on killing myself, I, I, I wouldn't discount the idea. Heinz immediately ordered Arno to dispose of the gun, and Arno obliged under Heinz's strict supervision. Yet, in a beautiful twist of fate, this somber encounter strengthened the bonds of friendship between the two men, which led to a positive spin on Arno's general mood. He never shared his inner darkness with anyone up to this point, and Heinz's sincere attempt at understanding him felt somewhat uplifting. I get the feeling, because that, that happiness thing is kind of like, but it's like this base level that you're at right and then you have these events in life so i imagine that's like cool and his friendship is strengthened but he's going to return to that kind of base low level right because it just doesn't really change that much but that was not the only change arno noticed around this time he observed a novel peculiarity that made itself felt increasingly often and it worried him quite a lot Every other day, he would experience severe episodes of dizziness and disorientation, as if he were heavily intoxicated all of a sudden. His eyes would turn into long, dark tunnels, taking in their surroundings through a thick lens of frosted glass. Everything sounded as if his ears were deeply submerged underwater, and he had trouble keeping his balance. This is, uh, you need to see a doctor. During the following months, these attacks grew in intensity and duration. Within a year, they completely replaced his default state. If that happened to me more than once, I'd see that, like, if that happened once, I'd be like, oh, that was weird and it would ne hopefully it would never happen again like i once had a migraine never had a migraine in my life this was years ago never had a migraine since it was horrible and i finally understood i was like oh i see this is like not a headache this is a absolute disaster and it went on for hours and then it completely passed and it's never happened since but if it kept happening i'd go to see the doctor I wouldn't wait a year. He did his best to conceal this issue, but it would only get worse. The quality of his work suffered greatly as a result, but Heinz cut him plenty of slack, knowing of Arno's difficulties. On particularly bad days, Heinz would drop his duties and take Arno for a stroll along the nearby railway tracks, hoping that this act of emotional support would help him in some way. Heinz sounds like an absolute legend. This is like, this sounds like a super nice dude. And in fact, the symptoms appeared to slowly diminish over time. Not because the actual problem disappeared, but because Arno had developed and adapted strategies to appear functional to the outside world despite his inner suffering. At some point, his coping mechanisms had become so effective that he managed to continue his job as a spray painter without drawing unfavorable attention from his co-workers. And this was quite the dramatic irony. You see, many years later, it would be discovered that the lack of car paint was to blame for his neurological deterioration. Toxic particles had entered his circulation through his lung tissue, gradually accumulating in his brain and causing severe damage over time. The devastating side effects of spray paint were mostly unknown or disregarded at the time, meaning he would continue to inhale even more poison for years to come. A simple face mask could have prevented all of this. Dude, spray painting without masks just seems so insane today because it's like, yeah, well, you're aerosolizing, aerosolizing something that goes and stays on a car for years and just breathing that in. It's like, that's not a good idea. That's not a good idea. The stuff that, you know, you see nowadays and you're like, that's not a good idea. Like, um, I don't know, pollution in cities and stuff. You'd just be wandering along and like a bus and you're like, oh, breathing that in. It's probably not good for me, is it? And I imagine in like years, people would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. There were internal combustion engines in cities, like in densely populated areas where people lived permanently. And people were like, that's insane. Didn't they realize how bad it was? And he's like, yeah, not really. <laughs> As the 1980s drew to a close, Arno hit rock bottom. He was both bodily and mentally broken. His life was devoid of meaning and passion, and his quest for happiness has le had led him to an abyss. On all levels, except physical, he considered himself dead. But with this ultimate resignation came a strange rekindled drive. Arno was aware of having nothing left to lose. So why not go all in? Among all the things he tried in order to finally be happy, there was one thing he had not attempted yet. A strategy that, by all appearances, was guaranteed to work. It may seem shallow, but according to his observation, the super-happy all had one characteristic in common. They were also 
super rich. Mm, is that, I guess, on the outside? But it's like, are rich people happier? Yes, they are. I mean, I used to not have much money, and now I have more money. And I think I'm about the same happy. It's just like, you know, stays the same. I'm more satisfied, I think. Like, I get quite a lot of satisfaction, but... Happiness, I don't know if that if that really changes that much, does it? Following this logic, Arno decided that becoming incomprehensibly wealthy would be his last shot of finding happiness. He also concluded that as a virtually dead person, there were no he had no negative consequences to fear whatsoever, so he might as well try the criminal path right away. This, this is amazing. <laughs> this is like so Walter White. This random thought nestled itself into his brain like a brand new operating system, a completely overhauled self-image that shaped his decision-making. He could assassinate the Pope if he wanted to. He could strip Stark naked in the middle of the street and pretend to be a gorilla. Who is to stop him? And by what means? As a corpse on probation, he was pretty much invulnerable. In fact, he did not have to ponder for long until he identified the appropriate target for his get-rich-fast plan. Arno set his sights on a very familiar institution that proudly stood as a melting pot for happiness and money, seemingly unlimited amounts of money, the Mall of the West. During the research phase of this episode, I consulted a certified psycho psychotherapist who, among other things, specializes in working with former criminals. God, that's got to be an interesting job. Just like analyzing criminals. I will elaborate on her input later on, but I think it is important to emphasize a couple of things at this point. First and foremost, we're not diagnosing anyone in any way. Yet, to her professional eyes, it did seem possible that Arno was suffering from major clinical depression. Yeah, as I was saying, this is treatable. That, like, black hole inside himself that like pit of despair there are 1980s there are drugs for that given the nano himself would later publicly agree to this assessment on multiple occasions i think it's fair to let that stand as a working hypothesis i decided to include this insertion right away to point out the following there are effective treatments for depressive disorders if you recognize a pinch of your own mental state in arno's biography then please know that help is always available being depressed is not a part of your true self even if it feels like that it's a disease that, it's a disease that plays tricks on your mind as someone who has suffered from depression in the past i can guarantee that there is no reason to be ashamed and it is not a sign of weakness either i actually mean it you can tell someone you can tell someone right now yeah entirely agree it's like it's just a, it's just a trick and it can be fixed like most of the time which is cool arno had also been a man of data facts and figures thus he thought little of mysticism and the supernatural nevertheless he could not shake the feeling that destiny was steering him in a certain direction as a positive byproduct of his disastrous childhood he held immense knowledge of technology and chemistry and as luck would have it he also had access to a fully equipped workshop thanks to his job the plot to build a bomb materialized all by itself despite these fortunate starting conditions there were still plenty of hurdles ahead building a bomb is neither easy nor without risk especially considering arno's unpredictable bursts of sudden dizziness any technical blunder would result in instant death also <laughs> jesus christ he's like oh, i really hope i don't have one of those spray paint blackouts right now whoops Also, without the internet, suitable blueprints were hard to come by. In modern times, of course, everyone knows about the casual criminalist, the world's number one learning resource for criminally insane. Oh, someone pointed this out the other day that it's like, oh my god, we dive into these so deep, and Simon points at everything that's wrong that it started off as a joke that this would be helpful to criminals, and now it's like, oh my god, it is actually helpful to criminals. <laughs> which is kind of bad. But in the late 1980s, people had to cope without Simon's helpful guidance, which made things incomprehensibly more difficult. Furthermore, the project required a considerable upfront investment as the individual components and some specialized tools had to be acquired. In fact, the lack of funds caused the biggest delay to the plan, but nonetheless, 
Arne made steady progress. <laughs> it's just had a super weird thought. But it's like, YouTube's been demonetizing so many of my episodes lately that I should just become a criminal consultant. It's like, you want to commit a crime? I'm your guy. <laughs> I'll consult with you. I've learned a lot about crime while not being a criminal. <laughs> Don't get any ideas. I'm not doing that. It's just a joke. The bomb was not the only invention that sprang from his ingenuity. Planning several moves in advance, he also devised a method for the subsequent money handover, a novel mad crap strategy that required a pulley system, a diving suit, and two more gadgets that he needed to assemble in addition to the explosive device. These were the most productive weeks of his life. By day, he worked diligently at his job, painting cars with a steady hand and an artist's touch. His colleagues were oblivious to the secret Arno carried within him, yet they did notice that he seemed increasingly, well, happy. Yeah, I remember this. Like, I've had times in my life where it's like, like, now I feel like I've been working on the same things for like a long time. Like, sometimes I'll start a new YouTube channel or whatever, and it's like, yeah, let's go. And even that's now kind of like, okay, yeah, that's what I do. But like, I remember like back in the day when you'd be starting a new project, you'd be like, this is amazing. And I'd be in the office for like 12 hours, 14 hours, just working, working, working on some new thing and just being excited and being like, yes, we're doing this, we're doing that, it's let's go. And yeah, no, I, I feel that. I feel that. I wasn't like making bombs, <laughs> but I feel that like, the rush of, of finding something new and exciting. At closing time, he would bid his co-workers farewell with a big smile on his face, pretending to head home for the night. But home was far from his destination. He would simply slip around the corner and wait, his heart pounding with excitement as he listened to the fading footsteps of his colleagues. When he was certain that Heinz and the others had disappeared, he would sneak back into the workshop and continue tinkering on his devices. The workshop was transformed into an entirely different world in the moonlit hours. His blowtorch cast dancing shadows onto the walls as the scent of oil and metal mingled with the cool night air. Arno's heart swelled every time he approached his secret project, the very thing that consumed his waking thoughts and sweetened his dreams. This is fascinating. Like He's just like, he's like, fuck it. <laughs> I've got nothing less to lose. I was going to kill myself. That was my path. I was so depressed. That's my path. And it's like, fuck let's become a criminal let's go what have i got to lose nothing and it seems like he's actually find, found something that genuinely excites him which is kind of awesome he had never experienced such joy such passion in any other pursuit he would pour through books about electrical engineering scavenge through scrap dealers yards for the perfect parts and draw detailed sketches by the flickering light of a single bulb dangling over his head the sound of turning screws became a symphony that accompanied his newfound sense of purpose his brain rewarded him with frequent rushes of endorphins for a change and he found himself thriving in the world of danger Arno lived and breathed the fun in dysfunctional. <laughs> at times, as he collapsed into his bed at the end of a grueling day, he was embraced by a peculiar comforting sensation. It was the anticipation of living another day. The Da Vinci of Crime In the spring of 1988, Arno stood back to admire his creation with an air of pride. The bomb, concealed as an unassuming cardboard box, was nothing short of a masterpiece. He had labored over every intricate detail, ensuring that not a single telltale sign would reveal the nature of its contents. Arno knew that once set in motion, the box would change the course of his life. As the fateful day dawned, Arno found himself at the entrance of the Mall of the West, his masterpiece cradled in a nondescript plastic bag. His palms were sweaty, knees weak, arms were heavy. <laughs> Getting that reference there, Dennis. He was nervous, but on the surface he looked calm and ready, <laughs> pleading, blending in with the throngs of shoppers who milled about. Days earlier, he had scouted the perfect location for his sinister plot, a quiet, unremarkable corner in the toy section. With a surreptitious glance to ensure he was unobserved, he set the box in place, made sure it was out of the reach of children, and activated the timer, scheduling its detonation for the early hours in the morning when the mall would be devoid of life. I still would have put this in the toy section. I'd go put it in like the old person's, like where they sell those, um, you know, those weird bags that old people weird wheel around behind them. Like that's where I put it, not in the toy section, because it's like. <laughs> 
I know, I'm sure my bomb is a masterpiece, but just in case, if I'm going to blow some people up, I'd rather blow up two old people than some kids, because I hate old people. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love old people. From the very outset, Arno had been determined to avoid human casualties at all costs. His ethical compass would not allow him to sacrifice innocent lives for his own gain, even if it meant forgoing the strategic advantage that that, that leverage would afford him. He also understood that killing people would have garnered more attention, more power. But Arno's underlying sense of justice would not yield to this temptation. For those familiar with true crime stories, the broad strokes of Arno's story might seem all too predictable. Time and time again, the world has witnessed a childhood marred by abuse, isolation, and negligence, which can breed violent attributes. But Arno was an exception to this grim pattern. I, I honestly think most people are an exception to this grim pattern. Sure, there's a pattern on the casual criminalist because it's a true crime podcast, but most people who come from childhoods marred by abuse, isolation, and negligence grow up to be, I mean, people with bad childhoods. They're not all monsters. Most people are not monsters. It just increases the chance of you becoming a monster. I also don't think Arno's a monster. He had never tortured animals, never harmed his peers, and never exhibited a propensity for deception or stealing prior to, you know, his crime series revolving around deception and stealing. <laughs> After this point, he was the embodiment of careful calculation and prudent restraint. Heck, as far as I know, he wasn't even into questionable pornography like a normal person. <laughs> As he left the ball empty-handed, a potent <laughs> Dennis, you're nothing. You're doing nothing to help me with German stereotypes, there, mate. As he left the ball empty-handed, a potent cocktail of excitement and terror coursed through his veins. But the emotion that weighed heaviest upon him was guilt. He was under no illusions about the morality of his actions, and he did not commit this crime out of some twisted sense of righteousness. Yet he rationalized it as a necessary evil, one that he had to embrace in order to survive. Before heading home, he tossed the ransom note into the mall's mailbox. Arno did not manage to fall asleep that night, not even with the help of a drink or five. His thoughts were consumed by the possibility that someone, despite his best efforts, might come to harm. As the first light of dawn crept over the horizon, he obsessively monitored every news channel, anticipating the breaking story of his nefarious plot. But to his astonishment, not a single report mentioned an explosion. As the hours ticked by, and still no news of his bomb surfaced, suspicion and unease began to gnaw at Arno's already frayed nerves. Unable to quell the mounting dread, he eventually succumbed to the urge to investigate. Still slightly inebriated, he climbed into his car and spread back to the department store. Upon arriving, Arno's gaze was immediately drawn to a small slip of paper affixed to the corner of the main entrance door. A white sticky note adorned by a single green dot. The sight brought a wave of relief washing over Arno. In his ransom letter, he had explicitly requested the company to single their willingness to pay by pay via precisely the sign. So they had both received and accepted his demands. What about the bomb? Perhaps it had been discovered and diffused in the nick of time, he reasoned. Then again, it no longer mattered. The green dot served as a promise, a guarantee that he was about to receive his much-needed windfall. Does he need the windfall? He doesn't need the money. <laughs> He's just like, I want the money. Arno had done his homework. In the movies, extortionists usually requested the money to be put in a public waste bin and also do not call the police. But he was not that naive. Obviously, they'd get the police involved no matter what, so he had come up with a plan to fool them. Actually, let's go through it from the perspective of the investigators and maybe put up that galaxy brain meme. Because this one is nothing short of a magic trick. It's admittedly somewhat complicated, so I included a sketch of the setup. Act 1. The Pledge Picture yourself as a seasoned detective. A ransom note had arrived just days before, directing you to a unique radio frequency at a specific time and date. Your task to tune in for additional instructions. No way. <laughs> 
It's like a movie. You mull over your potential strategies. One of your first ideas is to simply trace the signal back to its origin in order to ensnare the perpetrator. To facilitate this, you bring in your tech squad. They assure you that once the transmission is initiated, they can easily triangulate the signal's source location, so you and your techno wizard set up the necessary equipment in anticipation of the big day. As the appointed hour arrives, your team swiftly identifies the signal and ascertains its point of origin. Wasting no time, you jump into your vehicle, making a beeline for the signal's source, as indicated on your radar. But what you find is far from what you expected. Upon investigating the area, you discover not an extortionist, but a self-made gadget. A radio transmitter connected to a cassette recorder and a timer, all taped to a random tree in the heart of a bustling public park. The apparatus had sent the instructions autonomously. Annoyed by this successful feint, you listen intently as the looping tape crackles to life, the distorted and unrecognizable voice barely discernible amid the static. It speaks of a nearby lake, where you are to deliver the ransom money. With your trusted police colleagues by your side, you gather the cash and drive to the designated body of water. The sun dips below the horizon as you arrive. You cautiously step onto a small wooden jetty, the old planks creaking underfoot. At the end of a footbridge, you discover a small box connected to a steel cable, the other end disappearing into the dark, still surface of the lake. This is so crazy. This is such a plan. Where's it go? How's he going to get that money? He's like, oh, is he in the diving suit? They said he, there was a diving suit involved earlier, right? Is he under the water? Is he, is he in the lake right now? Act 2. The Turn You place the money into the box, as requested. As soon as you release your grip, the box springs to life, plunging into the lake with a resounding splash. It seemed as if the steel cable had pulled the box off the jetty, broadly into the direction of the opposing shore. You deduce the extortionist must be hiding on the other side of the lake, pulling in the money like a fisherman reels in a catch. With adrenaline surging through your veins, you and your police team race around the pond, determined to apprehend the criminal before he could pull the loot across the depths of the water. Gasping for breath, you and your team reach the opposite bank, only to find it eerily deserted. No sign of the extortionist, no box full of money, no steel cable. You're left to puzzle over your predicament, failing to notice that the climax is already unfolding back on the wooden walkway. What? What? And what? I, they wouldn't have police still at the walkway? I feel like you arrive and he's racing round, but surely some police are left there. Or like at least watching it or something, no? And even if they're not, surely that's a risk that, that Arno's thinking about. That they might. Act 3 the Prestige. As you and your team are busy scratching your heads, desperately trying to figure out where the ransom had gone, the mastermind emerges from his hiding spot close to the jetty back on the other side of the lake. Casually, he steps out to collect the money from beneath the wooden planks. He climbs down between the reeds, grabs the box, and leaves. So how is this possible? Well, let me explain. No person had been reeling in the wire manually. Instead, a self-built winch, complete with a battery-powered waterproof engine, had been responsible for the movement. Days earlier, Arno had dived to the depths of the leak to fix this ingenious device in place. As the gears started to turn, the container had only appeared to be moving across the water. But in truth, the pulley system attached to the bottom of the lake had redirected it straight back to where it came from. The steel wire pulled the money only a few misleading meters towards the middle of the lake, then directed it back under the pier, perfectly poised for retrieval. A fairly convoluted plan, if you ask me. While the basic idea shows appeal in the abstract, I couldn't help but notice the multitude of variables that were simply out of Arno's control. But was it ultimately successful? Unfortunately, this is bound to remain a mystery. You see, even though the Mall of the West management had initially agreed to comply with Arno's demands, the authorities intervened, instructing them to hold off on any payments for strategic reasons. Therefore, this marvelous magic trick was never performed. The investigators did triangulate the signal, they did discover the autonomous transmission device, they did investigate the lake, but they never put any money in the box. 
The police's refusal to play by Arno's rules had set him on edge. His aspirations of criminal supremacy were proving futile. Even worse, his operations were running in the red. Setting up the underwater mechanism had drained his meager resources even further, and to add insult to injury, the authorities wouldn't even dignify it with fake money. Feeling dismissed, underestimated in this epic battle of brains, Arno knew that he had to promptly adjust their worldview. So. It was back to the drawing board. Once again, days turned into nights as Arno's mind buzzed with activity, refining his gadgets and strategies, seeking the flaw that had derailed his previous plan. It seems to me the flaw is that they're not taking him seriously, so he needs to do another bomb or two until they take him seriously. Before long, he had discovered a logical error in the electrical switching circuits of the bomb it built. Oh, okay, of course the bomb never went off, so they just discovered it. An error that prevented detonation. Although the details of the issue were quite fascinating from an engineering standpoint, my kill drive and editor emphatically advised me to leave out the details. Editor's note, I'm probably on a list just for downloading your original manuscripts. <laughs> yeah, 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 don't go too much into bomb-making instructions. It's uh, even probably saying bomb-making instructions. It's probably not a good thing to say. Anyway. Now we're all on lists, Dennis. Undeterred, Arno set to work on a new bomb, an improved version. The process moved swiftly this time, as he had learned from his previous trials and errors. He also devised a simpler method for the money transfer, one that didn't involve diving into murky waters or constructing elaborate machinery. He aimed for efficiency, something less complicated, but no less clever. Less than a month later, Arno was ready to strike again. Disguised as a sales representative, he slipped into the Mall of the West, clutching a grey briefcase with explosive contents. He knew the mall detectives would be on high alert, and he couldn't rule out the possibility of undercover police officers lurking between the customers. His heart raced as he made his way to the sports department, feigning interest in various items to blend in with the crowd. When he was certain that he had not aroused suspicion, Arno placed the briefcase on the floor, triggering a small switch on the underside. A concealed flap sprung open, releasing the pipe bomb, which silently rolled under a nearby shelf in a matter of milliseconds. With sweat beading on his brow, Arno picked up the empty briefcase and made his escape as if nothing had happened. That night, alcohol was once again the only solace that could lull him to sleep. Yet around midnight, a distant bang jolted him from his slumber. Panic surged through him, his synapses firing wildly as he wondered if the noise was real or merely a figment of his imagination. But as it turned out, the bomb had indeed worked this time. The explosion decimated the sports section in an instant, the resulting pillar of smoke triggering the mall's sprinkler system. Goods on every floor were drenched, damaged or destroyed, with a total cost of destruction reaching 250,000 German marks, more than double what Arno had initially demanded. Fortunately, no one was injured, the store areas having been completely deserted just as he had predicted. May 25, 1988 marked the day of Arno's first successful bombing, the inaugural act in a series of six that would follow. Arno couldn't believe that he had literally blown up Germany's largest department store. It felt unreal and vastly different from what he had imagined. The preparation phase had been filled with excitement and a sense of success, but now that he saw the aftermath on the news channel, he felt like... Arno's neurological impairment, already a heavy, heavy burden, now seemed to weigh him down even more. His steps faltered, and his overstimulated nerves screamed for relief, driving him to numb the pain with high-proof alcohol. His conscience demanded him to surrender at the nearest police station immediately. His logical intelligence told him to go ahead with his plan, and the darkness of his soul enticed him to obtain a new gun. To regain control of his thoughts, he chose to resume regular work for a couple of days without doing anything regarding his crime. Yet despite his best efforts, he could not restrain himself from following the investigation closely. To his relief, however, there seemed to be hardly any progress, meaning that Arno soon felt sufficiently bold to arrange the second money handover operation. Similar to the previous attempt, he transmitted the instructions via autonomous receiver, which he had in a treetop. He declared June the 2nd as the date for the next phase, which gave him more than a month for further preparations. He had shelved the idea of underwater cable winches because in retrospect he found the unpredictable nature of such a scheme to be unworkable. But what was the proper solution? He wasn't sure yet. Inspiration struck during a walk along the railroad tracks near the auto repair shop where he worked. 
how about dropping the money from a moving train the attentive listener may recall four years later following the second bombing arno would also resort to this method however in 1988 his plan was simpler even a little half-baked i feel like just having someone on board just throw it out the window just be like okay i'm gonna radio you you're gonna be traveling on this train officer with this bag of money and at some point i'm gonna phone i'm gonna phone you or radio you or something i'm gonna send a signal and you're gonna have to throw the bag out of the window at that point and that's where i am and by the time you scramble police there i'm already gonna be gone that seems quite simple maybe it's a little bit half-baked but that's kind of the sort of thing i'd think of just a bag of money thrown out of a window one could perhaps imagine that arno had used his remaining preparation time to conjure up a brand new invention from his sleeve maybe a small crane a robot a remote control helicopter or the like but this hadn't been the case instead arno had simply instructed the police to board the rear wagon of a designated train and prepare themselves to hurl a fortune out of the window upon his commands exactly though rudimentary in comparison to his masterful fully automated dropping mechanism of 1992 the essence of his cunning remained intact with the investigators in the dark about the precise location of the drop they were unable to strategically position their troops along the sprawling route of course it was entirely possible that the cops would jump out of the moving train and chase after him but he prevented that pitfall by choosing a fast section of the route yeah jumping off a train <laughs> trains travel much slower back in the day because that i remember a mate of mine came into school one one day when we were like must have been 18 it was the last year of school and he was like bruised and battered and i'm like what happens and it was like oh me and this other guy we, we got drunk last night and then we almost missed our, our station the train was pulling away and so we just jumped out <laughs> the train was moving quite fast they fell onto the platform rolled over and got all cut cut and bruised and it's like oh dude the morning sun cast a golden glow across arno's bedroom as the shrill sound of an alarm clock roused him from restless attempts restless attempts at falling asleep a good day to die he mused to himself feeling the weight of sleep deprivation and the after effects of alcohol and spray paint lingering in his foggy mind he reached into the depths of his drawer retrieving his portable transceiver and a gleaming new handgun that promised either fortune or doom with a hint of uncertainty he mounted his bicycle and swayed his way to work throughout his shift arno did his best to maintain the facade of normalcy he shooed away any doubts about his intention like a swarm of flies and at any given opportunity reached for the drawer concealing his vodka stash like a prisoner awaiting the executioner's axe arno's heart pounded relentlessly in his chest as he pretended to focus on the work in front of him as all the cars were shining in fresh paint heinz was calling it a day arno declared with some half-hearted excuse that he had to stay a little longer sitting alone in the workshop he proceeded to drain his hidden reserves of alcohol his eyes darting between the radio and the pistol that lay menacingly before him the minutes ticked away each one bringing him closer to the precipice of fate in less than an hour arno would either be drowning in wealth and happiness or he would find himself face to face with his maker both options would bring an end to his misery he thought but if that was the case then why was he still filled with doubts he convinced himself of having no second thoughts because that would be absurd at this point the gears were already in motion 8 30 p.m another automated transmitter hidden in yet another public place triggers the tape informs the police of the exact railroad connection arno had chosen for the coup he had settled on the track section where he and heinz had wandered along every now and then barely a few hundred meters down the hill i feel like that's a mistake don't do it so close to your work don't do it somewhere you know you've got to choose something at random 8 55 p.m the train departs with policemen and bag of money on board arno empties the bottle and sets off to collect his grand prize nine o'clock arno kneels down in the wild growth along the railway tracks and waits one finger hovering over the send button of his radio one finger tickling the trigger of the pistol he had intended to calm his nerves with the vodka but instead the mixture of ethanol adrenaline and sleep deprivation made him tremble and shake fortunately he did not have a dizziness attack which was roughly a 50 50 gamble at this point 9:05 p.m as the headlights of the train come into sight arno brings the radio to his mouth and speaks loud and clearly this is the extortionist 
throw the money out now throw the money out now but nothing happens the train passed his hiding spot at full speed throwing a gust of draft in its face and vanishing into the sunset in a heartbeat the clatter of the carriages quickly ebbed away leaving arno in a situation he had not calculated in advance he hastily stumbled onto the tracks to confirm that he had not missed the money drop and once he was certain of this a wave of panic took hold without thinking arno stormed off in a random direction jumping across fences and bushes crisscrossing between alleys as if he were shaking off a pursuer the money no longer mattered to him and neither did his other exit strategy he just wanted to escape by any means necessary arno ran until his muscles ignited in torment and his veins surged with burning acid as his lungs were about to disintegrate from sheer exhaustion and every nerve in his body begged him to stop his foot then got caught in a chain link fence he immediately lost balance and lacking the strength to catch the fall crashed hard onto the asphalt floor he tried to roll sideways but that was a disastrous mistake as the old adage about not running with scissors in your hand also applies to pistols a deafening shot went off shattering the silence and hurling arno's adrenaline through the sky his movements froze shell-shocked and confused disorientated but he would snap back to reality eventually there was no red stain on his clothes or skin the bullet must have missed him miraculously jesus christ you not the safety on arno picked himself up and sucked in air as if he hadn't breathed for minutes the world around him was spinning thanks only in part to the vodka but now that he had a chance to think for a moment it occurred to him that he had made an even more serious blunder the dumbest blunder imaginable the passing vehicle had been a freight train but he was expecting a passenger train he had got the timing wrong oh no dude checking his wristwatch arno realized that he could barely make it back to the tracks in time with sweat flowing like rivers and a vision blurred from pain he resisted the urge to punch himself in the face for being such a fool he turned 180 degrees and continued to run he was using a short-range transmitter meaning that the police meaning that the policeman on the correct train still miles away at the time had not received his previous message in conclusion the universe had granted him another attempt with legs made from pudding arno collapsed behind the same buckthorn bush he had used as a hiding spot the first time dangerously fatigued sloshed to the gills and in clinical shock he had set a new high score regarding his loss of control yes i think this is a rule of the casual criminalist isn't it don't get drunk before doing your crimes i think this one don't get drunk before disposing of a body but also applies don't get drunk before doing your crimes the gunshot had likely prompted residents to call the police to the area which diminished his prospects of success even further it could hardly have gone any worse he hadn't even brought a second bullet which thwarted yet another option for him there was only one way left forwards from the direction of the sunset he could hear the rattling and squeaking of metal even though it was slightly delayed this had been this had to be the correct train contrary to stereotypes about german punctuality our train network is actually one of the worst in europe up to this date delays are rather the norm than an exception here so this caused no alarm for arno on the contrary he was grateful for the extra minutes <laughs> german trains are the worst uk trains are terrible this is the extortionist throw the money out now throw the money out now he spoke into the radio again with his gaze fixed on the approaching locomotive he realized the push to talk button he released the push to talk button and waited his anticipation simmered like a tightly coiled spring but again nothing happened out of desperation he relayed his radio message a second time and as he was still speaking the unthinkable happened a small white dot seemed to draw a parabola across the sky plummeting into the railway bed straight in front of his eyes at first arno was convinced that his befuddled mind was playing just another trick on him there was no way it actually followed his instructions he thought not in a billion years yet the sudden squeezing of the train brakes betrayed that this was truly happening thinking quickly arno understood that an army of policemen was about to pour out of the train carriage and flood the surrounding area so as now or never 
Braking distance would push the train several hundred meters down the track, giving him a slight head start in this race. Yeah, okay, wow. They got it to just stop the entire train. That kind of makes sense. I didn't think about that. They'd just be like, okay, stop the train, and then we're all going to... But a train takes a long time to stop because a train's real big. Could have you done this, like, I don't know, throw it into a canyon or something? Like a big... Or a river? That sort of thing? And then it'd be like the train would be on a bridge or some sh That seems like it would avoid that problem. He stumbled towards the package as fast as the last threads of energy allowed him. His wobbly steps danced on the treacherous ground as he fought for balance, a clumsy tango toward his destination. But when he had made it, he knew his life was about to change forever. Stacks upon stacks of money bills sealed in translucent foil. With the package firmly tucked under his arm, he bolted from the scene. His chest heaved, his lungs burned with the ferocity of a thousand suns. The pain swept into his bones like poison. But a primal, desperate urge propelled him onward. As he reached populated territory, he forced himself to slow his steps, which is great, because I can't think of an even stronger metaphor conveying intense exhaustion. Arno's plan was to slip back into the workshop and hide the money among the junk and clutter until the hunt had died down. The area was surrounded by countless middle-class homes, gardens, and small businesses. It would take the police months to search them all, leaving him plenty of time to smuggle the cash into his apartment at the first convenient opportunity. The flaw in this strategy reared its head when he ran into some men toiling away at the nearby petrol station. He knew them superficially as they had been as they had been in work-related contact before. Arno mustered a feeble way from afar, silently praying they wouldn't detect his glowing red face or catch sight of the bundles of money by his side. Arno suppressed his fight-or-flight instincts and proceeded at a leisurely pace, donning the guise of an ordinary evening stroll. And thus he arrived at the workshop, a sanctuary for his cherished wealth. He locked the door from the inside and sank to the floor where he lay down on a pillow of money. He did it. He actually did it. Arno was the owner of an immense fortune, waiting to be exchanged for happiness. He glanced around the dark shed as if fireworks were about to erupt in his honor. Half a million marks, he reminded himself. It was all his. He couldn't even begin to imagine all of the joy he would be feeling soon. I mean, very soon, any minute now. Hours passed, and nobody knocked on the door. To all appearances, there wasn't much activity outside the door at all. As the inky blackness of night had fully convinced him of his successful evasion, he straightened up and stuffed the money snugly behind a bunch of cardboard boxes and empty vodka bottles. What now, he wondered. His gaze roamed again, as if waiting for something to suddenly change. The workshop, though, remained dark and lonely. The Not-So-Great Gatsby the forthcoming days unfolded as an unyielding saga of suspense. In every spare second, Arno would perch on the edge of his armchair, spellbound by the television's flickering screen, soaking up the news like a parched sponge. He remained on high alert, poised to react at a moment's notice, in case the authorities reported on any breakthroughs. Yet, the more he heard, the more he realized that the police were grasping at straws, their investigation floundering. The incident dominated the news coverage for days, which was no surprise given the sensationalist nature of the crime. But instead of closing in on his identity, the responsible investigators were stunningly open about being completely stuck. One news anchor called it an embarrassment for all involved before rhetorically questioning the investigators' abilities to even handle the case. The print media echoed this narrative. As inconsequential news of the fruitless manhunt continued to rule the headlines, Zana became increasingly emboldened. Soon he felt sufficiently confident to stop monitoring the media 24 hours a day and return to his time-honored routine. Work, drink, hardly sleep, repeat. Even if there was no immediate threat of being caught, he refrained from recklessly splurging his newfound wealth for the time being. He decided to maintain a low profile for a little bit longer just to be sure. Inwardly, 
Arno's turmoil persisted. His neurological demons danced on his synapses, making him forget random things temporarily. One day, for example, another severe episode caused his memory of the money's hiding spot to evaporate. Driven to near madness, Arno tore open cushions, disassembled furniture, and pried up floorboards, leaving his apartment in shambles. Only then did he recall that the money was stashed at the workshop. And that was a huge problem. By the way, approximately a fortnight following the incident, two impeccably dressed gentlemen paid a visit to the workshop as Arno toiled away in the spray room. He caught sight of them from his peripheral vision as they exchanged pleasantries with Heinz before vanishing into his office. As Arno observed the dapper duo's demeanor, a chilling sensation crept up his spine. He felt an icy dread, as if fate itself had reached out and seized him by the throat. One of them spotted a clipboard bearing a police sketch, which prompted Arno to suspect that the situation was less than favorable. Setting his spray gun aside, he secretly approached the conversation to eavesdrop. The bomb extortion case brings us here, one of the men explained to Hines. An eyewitness spotted an individual of questionable behavior near this location. Would you care to take a look at the sketch? Do you know anyone bearing resemblance to this man? Now, years later, Arno would describe this very moment as one of the two scariest events of his entire criminal career. The pair of policemen stood a mere meters from him and his ill-gotten gains, flaunting his sketched visage to his superior. Let's have a gander, Heinz uttered, followed by a pregnant pause. He scrutinized the image intently, or maybe he had instantly identified Arno's face and was now wrestling with his conscience, weighing their friendship against his loyalty to the law. When Heinz finally uttered the words, doesn't ring a bell, sorry, relief washed over Arno like a torrential downpour dousing the flames of his fears. I wonder if it just doesn't look like him. It was like that. I assume this is the people at the petrol station, and they only saw him like from a distance. And they didn't know it was him because they had met previously. So they can't have seen him that well. With the customary, give us a call if you remember anything else, the officers departed as swiftly as they had arrived, and only now did Arno realize that his clothes were completely soaked with cold sweat. As soon as he heard the police car driving off, Arno announced his lunch break to his colleagues, stormed toward the petrol station across the street, and, and bought the first newspaper he could find. Sure enough, the sketch was prominently displayed alongside a corresponding article for context. Apparently, a witness had been alerted by the gunshot, and then observed a suspicious individual running back and forth like a maniac. Clearly him. Luckily, though, this mindful citizen suffered from either poor vision or a faulty memory, as the sketch was hardly accurate. Whoa. Yeah, I didn't think about that. I thought it was, that kind of happened in the middle of nowhere. But, yeah. Well, good. <laughs> oh, I'm on this guy's side. Just by saying that, I realize I'm on this guy's side. Oh, there we go. How about that? Among the veterans of this channel, eyewitnesses are sufficiently known for their lacking reliability in general, but this one takes the cake for sure. The sketch was probably worse than having none at all. As a matter of fact, the investigators would later retract the drawing from circulation and publicly declare it a dead end after they'd put several innocent people through the ringer on its basis, adding yet another item to their list of well-documented embarrassments. Looking at the drawing gave Arno a dangerous ego boost. The investigators were chasing after a bearded pumpkin. The remaining risk was negligible, so he made a decision on the spot. It was time to blow the dough. Now, how would you convert a medium-sized fortune into happiness. Since Simon is paying his writers, oh no, my battery just ran out. Since Simon is paying his writers per word, and it's going to be a three-hour episode, the same question came up for me. Yeah, it was a, it was an expensive one to make. So I dropped some acid, and this is the plan I've settled on: hire a team of professional skywriters to compose a giant smoke-based Sudoku puzzle right above Berlin, and challenge locals to solve it with walkie-talkies. Commission a custom water slide filled with cooked spaghetti and marinara sauce that you can slip, slide, and slurp your way to the bottom. 
That sounds gross. <laughs> Funds an entire gallery of slinky feet sculptures and then display them in an underwater exhibition for scuba diving foot enthusiasts, and the rest I'll probably spend on pointless nonsense. But since Arno was more the down-to-earth type, he instead decided to abscond to the sun-dappled shores of the Philippines, the Emerald Archipelago, the promise, the sweet nectar of anonymity and decadence. Yeah, I have to say, like, if you've got all the proceeds of a crime, and there's been this big cash crime that's gone on and then this poor dude's just like spending all this money in the town that seems like that's going to draw attention but if you're just like yeah book a flight and just take like a shoebox full of money in your uh in your luggage i mean hope customs don't go through your luggage and then just spend it abroad no one's gonna know right that seems like quite a good plan alongside him he also invited his boss heinz who blissfully ignorant of the money's illicit origins had been convinced by arno that a sudden stroke of good luck was responsible for their prepaid all-inclusive trip what excuse did he use like oh yeah it's like oh my rich aunt died or uh, i won a scratch card it could work a few weeks later but it's still risky a few weeks later the two of them boarded a plane to palawan island diving headfirst into a world of reckless hedonism they gambled with abandon raced across the island in rented quads and drank like there was no dawn their holiday funds quickly vanished into the haze of laughter and half-remembered merriment yet there was a peculiar thrill to this rapid depletion granting them a sense of invulnerability as if they were characters in a novel written just for them but this euphoria was volatile. Arno's mind ebbed and flowed like the tides that surged up the white beaches and retreated just as quickly. At times, he towered above the world, impervious and mighty, and the next breath self-doubt devoured him, and he wondered if going on an unbridled trip was but an ephemeral and hollow victory that led straight back to square one. <laughs> Surprise Pikachu meme. <laughs> right on <laughs> yet for arno their journey was not a mere pleasure trip but a venture with a concealed agenda the tropical island state served not only as an eden for sun-seeking tourists it bore a more complex identity partially steeped in you guessed it crime oh is he gonna launder his money there or something during the late 80s the philippines served as a global hotspot for the unholy trinity of money laundering tax evasion and under the table dealings yes he is this was not only an open secret but a substantial part of the nation's economic system on top of that the lax airline safety protocols of the pre-9-11 era allowed arno to carry all of his cash on board without anyone checking their luggage would they check i mean when you go to the airport and your bag goes through the scanner they're checking for like weapons and metal sh they're not going to be, oh, there's a bunch of cash in there. Right? That's not what they do. They're more interested, aren't they more interested on the other side? Like, cause there's always those signs when you enter an airport, like, are you carrying more than 10,000 pounds worth of cash? Remember to declare it. Like, they don't care on the way out. It's on the way in. And then they, they don't scan you. It's just about whether you get pulled over if you go through the red lane or uh, through the green lane. Or however it works. I don't know. I've never been pulled over. I've, I've walked through that green lane many, many times. I don't think I've, at least not in memory, I don't think I've ever been pulled over and had my bag searched for anything. Not that I've ever smuggled anything, but you know, you go through those airports. Like, I imagine the Philippines. I've never been to the Philippines, but I imagine it's one of those countries where you go through and they're like, remember, we have the death penalty if you're smuggling drugs. And even though you have no drugs on you, you're walking through that being like, oh no, don't pull me aside. I don't have any drugs, but I'm slightly scared that what if someone did put drugs in my bag? Pull yourself together. Ah. We can't take you anywhere. Oh God. His days on Palawan were therefore punctuated by secret visits to shifty exchange officers where the sanctity of the law was a foreign concept. Here 
in these shadowy corners of commerce, Arno would trade in his stolen and potentially traceable bills for unblemished ones with a knowing nod and a clandestine handshake. Each transaction was marked by a brokerage fee, a small price to pay for the peace of mind it offered. Other sources, however, claim that Arno simply bought random stuff in large denominations and kept the clean change, which sounds logical, but not half as interesting. Yeah, wait. Why would you need to do anything dodgy? Just like, say you've got, I don't know, how much did he have? Like half a million euros? Just go to one place with 5,000 euros and change it into Philippine pesetas? <laughs> Whatever currency they use in the Philippines. And then take all that money and then go to another place and go, hey, I'm going home. I'd like to change these back to euros. And then you change it back to euros. And by the time you're done, you probably lost like, I don't know, 20% or something probably outrageous. I don't know, 10%. And then you've got clean euros and then just go round all of the go round like 100 exchange offices or 200 exchange offices which i'm sure is possible boom done <laughs> why would it that seems more logical than risking going to some dodgy place where they could get you in trouble i got a money laundering big brain anyway by the time they boarded their homeward flight arno had laundered the entirety of his remaining stash Yet, amidst the tumultuous story, there was another pivotal twist. During one of the boozy party nights on the island, Arno had crossed paths with a woman who would irrevocably alter his life by stirring in him the tender tumult of first love. A romance as sweet as sugarcane unfurled between them, and despite the fleeting nature of their shared time, she chose to chase the setting sun with Arno all the way to Germany. There, they intertwined their lives in matrimony, and even brought forth a new life into their shared world changed. This revelation surely comes as a bolt from the blue, considering Arno's characteristically detached approach towards people. His emotional fortress was a confounding maze. Opening up to others was a feat that eluded him. To truly fathom the gravity of this relationship in Arno's existence, one would likely need to pen volumes, but I choose not to do that. You see, in the aftermath of the Scrooge McDuck saga, Arno's wife tried best to remain a silhouette against the spotlight. She demonstrated no inclination for the glare of public scrutiny. Yeah. In the aftermath of it turning out that your husband set off bombs and t to make money, you wouldn't be like, hello, yes, I'd love to talk to the police. You'd be like, leave me alone. <laughs> I'm staying indoors. Please leave me alone. And as it must be declared prematurely, she remained entirely ignorant of Arno's criminal ventures up to the point of his eventual arrest. Her only culpability, if any, lay in her reluctance to probe too deeply. There's no culpability there. You'd just be like, I don't want to know. Thank you very much. But in my opinion, this naivety does not justify dragging her into the limelight against her will. Therefore, out of ethical obligation, I refrain from painting her further into this narrative. Well done, and I like that. I think that is the ethical and correct thing to do. We haven't even mentioned her name, which is nice. By the way, it has been brought to my attention that there is a persistent and somewhat misogynistic stereotype haunting Filipino women who happen to marry affluent European tourists. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, there's that American TV show which I've never seen, but they talk about it on that podcast, the H3 podcast. <laughs> 90 Day Fiance. And there's the dude. Is his name Big Ed? And he doesn't have a neck? And this was his story? And I get the feeling that's the story of 90 Day Fiance. While the despicable realities of human trafficking and exploitative prostitution do exist and must be fiercely opposed, I caution against heavy generalizations. Their bond was woven from the delicate threads of honest affection, a far cry from the insinuations that such stereotypes suggest. Anyway, back in Germany, richer by a wife and piles of freshly laundered money, Arno moved into a larger home, skirting the boundaries of his legitimate finances by tapping into his dirty treasure. I mean, your mo his money's all been laundered and stuff. But still, if you go and buy a house and you're like, here's a giant pile of cash, or if you go into a bank and are like, here's a giant pile of cash, surely, like, whoever German 
Scotland Yard or I don't know who deals with like money laundering is it Scotland Yard or like FBI who cares they're gonna get a ring the the bank person's gonna be like hello <laughs> just let you know this man who looks a bit like a peasant has arrived with tons of dirty money <laughs> figuratively and also perhaps literally this lifestyle appealed to him even if it was not the great salvation he had hoped for. In an interview he gave on German television in 2012, Arno described this stage of his life as followed. I felt slightly better on the surface, but on a deeper level, nothing had changed at all. Upon his return to Germany, the extravagances of his once-in-a-lifetime holiday came to an abrupt halt. In stark contrast, the subsequent years were anything but a party. As a newly minted father, Arno instead tried to settle into Berlin's middle class. He shapeshifted into the epitome of normality, a walking, talking embodiment of lawn maintenance, predictable fashion choices, Choices and meticulously organized sock drawers. He embraced the role of a respectable family man with gusto, going above and beyond to create a sense of stability around him. <laughs> it's sad that I'm so, like, dadsy and middle-aged that I'm like, ooh, neatly made sock drawer, lawn maintenance. I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> His intention to assimilate into normal suburban life was crowned with some success. He superficially knew his neighbors and even gathered a collection of shallow friendships akin to shells on a beach that lacked the treasures within. His social orbit revolved around the idea of consistency but fell short of providing the inner fulfillment that he truly sought. Arno soon decided to quit his job because he simply no longer needed it. A good call, albeit for reasons unclear to him at the time. Life is better without lack of paint in the brain. Yes, poor guy. That's really like... It goes in through your lungs and into your brain and then makes you have like these weird blackouts dude this was like the 80s even though the damage caused during the previous years was largely irreversible the lack of new toxins alleviated the symptoms to some extent the downside of unemployment of course is poor sustainability half a million marks was undoubtedly a massive amount of money but as a funny quirk of mathematics numbers tend to get smaller if you keep subtracting from them <laughs> again surprise pikachu faced arno a self-taught arithmetic genius was certainly aware of this fact as well the first somewhat endurable phase of his adult life had arrived with a built-in expiry date a looming hourglass steadily emptying its grains over his head the sand had already risen to its neck arno set himself a personal bottom line the moment the funds dropped be dropped below the hundred thousand mark threshold he would seek a new source of income unfortunately that day dawned sooner than anticipated much sooner and so merely three and a half years later he rented a nearby workshop and started constructing a new bomb alongside a complex dropping device his target the Cardstart mall in hamburg's mockerberg street is this the one we started out with? Robin Hood versus Dog Poop. As you may recall, our episode began with the explosive events of 1992. Yes, it is. We then took a time portal in order to trace Arno's life up to his first strike in 1988. Now we find ourselves back at the precipice of 1992. You may wonder why I chose this anachronistic structure to begin with. I didn't even think about it because it flowed so nicely, Dennis. I didn't even think about it. Well, the first draft of the script was written on 12,511 post-it notes, and then a strong gust of wind slightly rearranged the sequence. This is obviously a lie, but when my editor asked me the same question and I explained to her that I tried to keep up the suspense for time-traveling viewers this way, as you cannot spoil an ending if you don't know where it is, she looked at me as if I was crazy or something, so I had to cook up that other excuse. It's not crazy. It works so well. Anyway. Two dozen pages prior, we concluded the Hamburg saga with a stalemate between the authorities and Arno, who had adopted the moniker Scrooge in the meantime. Scrooge had escaped capture thanks to his double-layered timer mechanism, but Detective Delecki, having learned from past errors, had left the extortionist with nothing more than 1.5 kilograms of worthless paper scraps. Well, almost. 
As you may recall, the real-timer had dropped the bag barely a few kilometers after the train's departure. But when Arno went to pick it up, all he could see was authentic cash. The police had affixed four 500-mark notes to the external surfaces of the foiled parcel, creating the illusion of real money all the way through. They also had a tracing device within. However, Scrooge proved more perceptive than they had anticipated. He saw straight through their bait and abandoned the package along the railway tracks. This setback had plunged Arno into a precarious state. His funds had dwindled to dangerous levels, and the prospect of impending destitution completely overshadowed the minor triumph of another narrow escape. As we've emphasized before, bomb construction is a task both laborious and expensive. His latest projects had drained his resources to the point of impending bankruptcy, a risky investment that had yielded no returns. The paradigms changed. As a result, Arno was no longer chasing a fantastic life of opulence and luxury. Instead, he was hell-bent on defending the normal life that he had grown to enjoy. Psychological studies have shown time and time again the agony of losing something greatly outweighs the pain of not having received the same thing in the first place. Yeah, of course, you don't miss what you've never had. In consequence, Arno's determination surged like a dangerous tempest. His desperation metastasized into new levels of rage. This is dangerous. This could lead to recklessness. Like the first time around, he was like, I don't have anything to lose. Like... I'm just gonna make some perfect bombs using my genius brain. In a later interview, Arno explained that he felt as furious as he had never been before that day, when he had grabbed the sealed package with a triumphant smirk on his face only to find white strips of paper. His reaction was both intense and obvious. He immediately set about building the next bomb. With the benefit of hindsight, Talaki's decision to use fake money had been extensively questioned and debated. Obviously, the idea of straight-up paying a maniac to blow up random malls every few years was untenable for law enforcement. Yeah, this was the thing at the beginning, like, don't negotiate with terrorists, because then the terrorists will do it again. Don't negotiate with blackmailers and bombers for the same reason. The potential for inspiring copycats was all too apparent, not to mention the challenge of explaining such a strategy to the taxpayers. Yeah, and wasn't that... So we talked earlier about the... the the prisoner exchange for the merchant of death, the, the basketball player, the American. And then, like, a few months later, Russia arrests a journalist, like an American journalist, and you're like, who's getting free this time? It just encourages bad behavior. Then again, the lack of fatalities thus far could only be attributed to Arno's cool-headed moral consideration. Had it been wise to provoke such a volatile individual? It was now up to Arno to unmistakably demonstrate the depth of his resolve by raising the stakes with the police. He felt obliged to teach them a lesson. He had to step up his game and fuse his threats with new credibility. For the Scrooge Task Force of 1992, all of this had been as clear as day. Yet all they could do was cross their fingers and hope that Arno would stick to his credo nonetheless. You may wonder why they did not simply close the malls as a security measure. Well, this certainly sounds good on paper, but the sheer number of possible locations made it impractical, as it would best postpone the inevitable blast, not forestall it indefinitely. Moreover, there was nothing preventing Scrooge from redirecting his attention to other structures, airports, train stations schools. While Arno was busy crafting his fourth explosive device, the gears of the investigation relentlessly turned, sweeping up numerous individuals in the dragnet of suspicion. The vortex of scrutiny had caught quite a few, but one elderly gentleman found himself in the eye of the storm. His voice bore an uncanny resemblance to the one captured on tape, and his striking similarity to the sketch had him in the crosshairs following a neighbor's tip-off. The man was known as a tinkerer and a craftsman among his friends, and as a surprising twist, it was quickly discovered that his late brother had named him Dagobert, the German equivalent of Scrooge. Wow, this is an unlucky dude. The most condemning of all evidence, however, was his brazen loyalty to Marxism. And as we all know, only a bad person could ever be a communist and vice versa. Thus, it seemed victory was practically in the bag, yet when the suspect was ultimately presented to Inspector Delacky, who thought little of political bias and instead focused his attention on rock-solid alibis for literally every single bomb attack and money handover, 
Millie was quickly let off the hook. Yeah, it's like, that is so unfortunate. <laughs> it's good there's a policeman who's like, yeah, okay, let's actually, you know, look at the real things. Incidents like these further shaped the public sentiment to the disadvantage of investigators. This was not their first failure, making headlines. And it would not be their last. The media had a field day with the incident, churning out countless articles and editorials about the blunder. Another embarrassment for the department, read one title, while another snidely questions, are the investigators still around? The tabloids, hungry for sensationalism, pounced on the story, criticizing the investigative team and painting a picture of incompetence and clownery, while implicitly praising Scrooge for his wits. Although they were not openly endorsing his actions, they still went for Scrooge out smart police, once again, rather than dangerous terrorists still on the loose. Arno closely monitored the media with mixed feelings. Among the investigators, one face emerged particularly often. This epitome of lawful good, characterized by his penetrating gaze, appeared to helm the investigation, and his name was Michael Dalecki. The media presented him with great deference at first, but this would quickly change as his on-camera contributions were often minimal and discouraging. We have no new facts to report at the moment, he would repeat over and over again, likely a genuine admission. In one instance, Delecki withdrew the microphone and stepped aside, unaware that he remained within the camera's purview and that the broadcast was still going. For a second or two, the entire nation could watch him shake his head in shame before the feed abruptly cut back to the studio. On a separate occasion, a reporter blindsided him with a question, leaving him utterly dumbfounded. The unexpected query, when can we expect your inevitable resignation? Harsh. Why, he's just... What? Like, when can we expect you? I'm doing my job. I'm trying to catch a dude. Like, I'm not going to catch them all. What do you want? <laughs> I'm not just going to quit every time I don't close a case. According to some retellings of the story, Arno found himself filled with empathy for Delecki on a personal level, despite his lingering anger over the counterfeit money. After all, it was his actions that had turned the inspector into the laughing stock of the nation, and this poor man was only doing his job. However, there are pressing reasons to question this anecdote. Notably, Arno does not reference Delecki in his biography. Not even once. His name was not surfaced frequently in subsequent interviews either. Uncovering any direct commentary from Arno about his adversary proved to be a challenging task, with a few existing remarks feeling somewhat indifferent. Their alleged parasocial relationship akin to Sherlock Holmes versus Professor Moriarty, a bromance, did likely not exist from Arno's point of view. I think of not Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, but the Catch Me If You Can um tom hanks and dicaprio's characters but i guess that's not what this is uh, we can certainly assume he felt some degree of professional connection though it did not carry a huge amount of emotional resonance for him but we'll circle back to that later Delecki had also made an appearance on Aktenzeichen XY, Germany's equivalent of America's Most Wanted. This show's format involved investigators presenting unsolved cases in the hope of garnering valuable leads from the public. During the broadcast, a phone number was displayed, enabling viewers to listen to Arno's 1988 radio transmission free of charge. This is the extortionist. Throw the money out now! Throw the money out now! Perhaps someone out there would identify the voice. Delecki reasoned to the host. Arno doubted that. He had concealed his voice, of course, and upon hearing his own recording, he could confidently confirm it bore no resemblance to his natural tone. Arno's vocal pitch was a tenor with clear accentuation, whereas the radio transmission was reminiscent of a cartoon robot suffering from a mild case of East German dialect. September the 9th, 1992. The explosion came sudden and violent, drastically exceeding its predecessors. The blast echoed through the halls of Bremen's Cardstart Mall, a monstrous roar that shook the very foundation of the newly renovated building like an earthquake annihilating everything in its path of destruction. 
Arno's arsenal had evolved from rudimentary pipe bombs to military-grade tools of warfare, so to speak. According to experts, the resulting damage exceeded the previous attack by a factor of roughly 25. But as a silver lining, despite everything, Arno had once again chosen to strike at night, with no lives lost and no bodies maimed. As the old headlines gave way to the next news cycle, the nation's kiosks were once again dominated by Scrooge. Interestingly, Arno contradicts this in his autobiography by stating, I searched the newspapers for reports about the attack, but could not find anything. I'm not sure if this was a lapse in his memory or a result of some other confusion, but after unearthing the respective editions of several newspapers, I can attest that the blast certainly garnered proper attention. However, there was one article Arno did find, and it would profoundly influence him. It was an interview with a criminology expert of questionable credentials who did his best at outlining a profile of the perpetrator. One line that stuck with Arno was this. Detonating a bomb when the stores are empty is one thing, but detonating during opening hours would be quite another. There is certainly no danger from Scrooge. He would never dare take such a step. Never. Ever. And you want to guess what Scrooge did next? As a ruler, I don't... He really in the day? Like, this doesn't seem like any. He does seem to have a very strong moral compass about not hurting people. As a rule of thumb, the pace of any crime series will exponentially speed up over time, and this was true for Arno too. Not even a week after the Bremen attack, which he now deemed insufficient on account of the aforementioned article, he boarded a train headed for Hanover, his heart hammering a furious rhythm against his ribs. He was gripped with an unusual cocktail of feelings, the most disconcerting of which was his absolute sobriety. Not a drop of alcohol had passed his lips in preparation for this perilous mission, a venture of terrifying uncertainty. Good. Don't commit crimes while you're drunk. We know this. It's a rule. The absence of the familiar warmth in his bloodstream left his nerves raw and unprotected, and his impulse to change that and the onboard bistro was strong. Ha Hanover, in stark contrast, the kaleidoscope of Arno's emotion was a landscape of average as gracefully devoid of any distinctive flair. If you tied generic German city into any AI image generator, you will find yourself with Hanover. <laughs> it's the type of fun. I don't think I've ever been to Hanover. <laughs> Honestly, until he, until he mentioned it was in Germany, I kind of thought it was in the Netherlands. <laughs> Kind of sounds Dutch. <laughs> it's the type of functional no-frills architecture that makes you instantly lose on GeoGuessr. A masterclass in monotony, a parade of identical streets, geometrically precise rectangles, and a palette of colors as muted as a winter dawn. I get the feeling that Dennis doesn't like Hanover. <laughs> Arno had been there many times before, yet he did not recognize anything specific, as there is nothing specific to recognize, for the better part. <laughs> Harsh. For the better part of an hour, Arno meandered the city, absorbing its blandness. He noted the array of department stores flanking pedestrian zones, virtually indistinguishable from one another. He chose one at random, but not before fortifying himself with a quick bite from a nearby fast food joint. As he crunched through his burger, Arno's thoughts drifted toward the upcoming steps of his mission. Unlike previous attacks, his approach was less calculated this time, less thought through, born mostly out of compulsion than strategic deliberation. This sounds like a mistake. Strategic deliberation has served you very well so far, Arno. And now this feels like the sort of thing that's going to get you in trouble. Retiring to the privacy of a restroom cubicle, Arno, with his hands still trembling from the lack of liquid courage, gingerly unpacked his cargo. A pipe bomb. His eyes flicked to his watch. It read 17.30. With a few swift taps, he set the timer for 17.45, a mere quarter of an hour away. He carefully swaddled the explosive device in a cloak of black cloth, cradled the ominous parcel under his arm, and with unerring purpose, ventured toward the main entrance of the department store that sprawled across the street. This sounds like it's going to kill people, dude. The interior of cast-out locations followed a predictable layout, so he immediately found his way around. As per the routine of past attacks, he ambled through the aisles, feigning interest in this or that, all while vigilantly scanning for an opportune moment. The oppressive seconds ticked away, each one 
amplifying the pressure mounting in Arno's mind. His heart pounded in sync with each throb of the second hand on his watch, 1738. 1739. The immensity of the situation was beginning to bear down on him. The weight of the concealed bomb grew progressively burdensome. His frantic eyes darted around the store, desperately scanning for a suitable spot. Every potential location had its pitfalls. The toy section was rife with cameras, the clothing department teeming with shoppers, the sports section too open, too visible. The normally dull and characterless department store had suddenly transformed into a labyrinth of potential dead ends and hazards. His gaze landed on the furniture section, but as he began to stride towards it, he noticed a security guard making a round, an unfortunate roadblock in his path. He veered off toward the electronic section, only to meet up with a group of children playfully exploring the rows of first-generation gaming consoles. His watch now read 17.42, a mere three minutes left. The relentless march of time seemed to have accelerated, the seconds slipping away faster than Arno could keep up with. Panic surged through him like an electric current. The possibility of not finding a spot in time was becoming a reality, an outcome that could result in his own demise. He was running out of time and options. With just a minute to spare, he darted back toward the furniture section, which was now completely empty. The security guard appeared to be patrolling somewhere else. This was the opportunity Arno had been waiting for. He carefully slid the bomb between a folding cabinet and a supporting pillar, praying that nobody would come near it within the next 15 seconds. Arno put barely 20 meters between him and the bomb when it went off, its roar echoing throughout the department store. The sound was a monstrous wave engulfing him, washing over him, threatening to drown him. It resonated in his skull, bouncing off his eardrums in a disorientating symphony of noise. This seems like a terrible idea, dude. What are you up to? Arno reeled back, clutching his head as his world spun. His vision blurred, the shapes of the store and the people within it blending together in a chaotic whirl of colors. He staggered, trying to maintain his balance, but the disorientation was too overwhelming. Everything was too loud, too bright, too fast. He was a ship adrift in a storm, tossed about by the relentless waves of sensory overload. Around him, the department store descended into chaos. People screamed, their voices just indistinct noise against the ringing in his ears. They ran in every direction, their movements erratic and panic-stricken. Shoppers' carts were abandoned mid-aisle, their contents scattered across the floor. The store's alarm system blared, its piercing wail adding to the cacophony. Arno's journey to the exit seemed never-ending, but once he finally managed to step back onto the street, a sigh of relief ghosted his lips, merging with the cool embrace of the evening air. The ensuing pandemonium provided Arno with the perfect cover, allowing him to slip away unnoticed, yet a fragment of his subconscious would forever remain tethered to the mess he had created, an indelible mark etched upon his psyche. As the sky darkened later that day, Arno found no sleep. Completely immersed in the realm of intoxication, the full magnitude of his actions began to bear down on him with increasing intensity. Fear and guilt consumed him, wondering if he had caused harm or even death to innocent bystanders. Though he had chosen a relatively feeble explosive to minimize such possibilities, witnessing the destructive power of his own creation had shattered his certainty. This rubbish article had tempted him to set off a bomb during the opening hours, and he had allowed himself to be provoked. Maybe. He'd gone too far. Yeah, it was crazy risky, dude. What if there were no spaces without people in them? You could have easily killed someone. This, like, like so far in the store, I was kind of like, yeah, he's just kind of like, he's not hurting anyone on purpose. It's kind of like on his side, like you are in Catch Me If You Can and stuff, or like in Dexter. And now I'm just like, yeah, dude, you could have really killed someone. There were children in there and stuff. With the arrival of the next morning, the unfortunate truth came crashing down through the news. Two women had suffered so-called blast trauma, which is a type of physical injury resulting from the forceful impact of a blast wave. The long-term symptoms vary depending on the severity of the injury, but they may include permanent hearing loss, tinnitus, traumatic brain injuries, and even irreversible cognitive difficulties. Moreover, I'm convinced that many others had to cope with the psychological consequences for a long time to come, though this was never really reported on. 
I've been to Hanover recently, and I visited the mall in question, without any concrete expectations, just pure curiosity. I believe I pinpointed the precise location of the bomb's detonation, though no commemorative marker or noticeable aberration marked the area, so I just snapped a photo to satisfy my narcissistic impulses and left. What struck me as extraordinary on the way out, however, was the remarkably broad selection of Disney products. <laughs> okay. It seemed like every character was represented among the toys and printed clothing, with a notable exception of Scrooge McDuck. I couldn't help but find this amusing, though I'm certain it was a mere coincidence. <laughs> so. The bombings. Now that the line of human victims had been crossed, you would think that Scrooge's excellent reputation would be worsened drastically. The public discourse now turned into an absurd circus, and national news devolved into a daily soap where people cheered for the bad guy. In one broadcaster, camera crew asked people on the street what they thought of Scrooge. Every single person expressed their respect, sympathy, or even admiration. In a professional, we do like a bad guy, don't we? In a professional poll conducted in 1992, 64% of all respondents declared themselves to be on his side, making Scrooge more popular than Helmut Kohl, the federal the federal chancellor. <laughs> Scrooge's influence permeated pop culture. He's not even like he's not even a Robin Hood. He's not giving it to the he's not giving it to the to the poor. He's just keeping it for himself. Scrooge's influence permeated pop culture with several bands changing their names in his honor. In even successful ones such as Scrooge. Scrooge, even successful ones such as Scrooge, 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 and even Scrooge. Fan clubs sprouted up like mushrooms. A variety of merch was available at every other general store, and everyone wanted to join the madness. Techno tracks peppered with samples from Arno's famous Throw the Money Out Now line reverberated incessantly across disco floors and radio dials. T shirts saying, I am Scrooge, were sold by the thousands, and people across all ages and socioeconomic bubbles would unite by wearing them. <laughs> This is kind of crazy, though. On various talk shows, panels of comic analyst experts attempted to identify connections between the cartoons and real-life events and potentially forecasting future developments. Following the police's disclosure that Scrooge had allegedly been residing in a particular hotel under an assumed identity, the establishment converted said room into a bizarre Scrooge-themed exhibition showcasing evidence, crime scene photos, and portraits of known suspects. Consequently, the hotel was fully booked for months on end. Scrooge McDuck had morphed into a widely cherished brand. Which begs the question, what the fuck is wrong with people? It is kind of strange, isn't it? He's a bomber. He's setting off bombs. For our international viewers, it is likely hard to imagine. A failed artist with a questionable moral compass rising to power and fame in Germany. So let me elaborate. <laughs> I wonder what famed artist that would be, Dennis. According to my analysis, there are mainly two reasons for Scrooge's stardom, with one of them being rather obvious. Scrooge, seen through the lens of the TV screen, was the archetype of an anti-hero, a reflection of real human flaws and complexities. His unorthodox approach of non-violent terrorism captivated audiences drawn to rule breakers and rebels, but without causing much cognitive dissonance. Scrooge was the Gandhi of pipe bombs, the underdog who dared to rise against the establishment, the David fighting against the Goliath. And everyone joined in on a rebellion against those up there. Those up there are the police trying to stop bombings. <laughs> It's important to mention, however, that this characterization is debatable at best. Scrooge is often compared to Robin Hood up to this date, but this verdict comes with a small issue. While Scrooge certainly mastered the taking from the rich part, he conveniently forgot the giving to the poor bit. He had never been concerned with political change, wealth redistribution, or justice, at least not during his criminal career. Also, I refuse to applaud him for avoiding fatalities, as this false dichotomy completely ignores the existence of a third option, you know, not blowing up malls at all. Beyond that, however, there was a second, much more important factor. In the early 90s, people loved to watch the police getting pounded really hard, 
and they all had a reason to do so. Again, in the aftermath of the Second World War, Germany had been cleaved in two parts, a division that would endure until the winter of 1989, barely three years prior to the Hanover explosion. Now, we've touched on this before, but as a quick reminder, whereas the western areas had blossomed into a modern democracy, the eastern part had been ruled by the Soviet oppressors with an iron fist. During those 40 years, the police played a key role in maintaining the totalitarian regime. Operating under the Ministry of State Security, commonly known as the Stasi, the police in the GDR were notorious for their brutal tactics and pervasive surveillance apparatus. They employed a range of oppressive measures, including arbitrary arrests, imprisonment without trial, and the systematic use of torture to extract confessions. Dissidents, political activists, and anyone deemed a threat to the regime faced constant surveillance, harassment, and intimidation. And if you were caught trying to cross the border, you were shot on the spot. Yeah, it's a really good way to like encourage hate of police, right? With the fall of the Berlin Wall, the police agencies underwent rapid transformation. However, to many, this change seemed to be merely cosmetic. A handful of the authority figures were relocated, some were dismissed entirely, but the majority of the rank-and-file officers simply continued their service under the new banner. Which is weird, because like, I mean, you've got to have police, right? But the police in East Germany, like, shooting people if they cross the border and doing all that kind of like oppressive Soviet Union shit. It's going to be a real change when you're like, oh, wait, we've got to be policemen in the democracy? That's a bit weird. What do we do? Traffic control? There's no shooting of innocent people? Come on! What are we supposed to do all day? Distrust remained the overarching sentiment towards law enforcement in the former GDR regions. They were still viewed as adversaries. This political climate was clearly not without effect. Scrooge was the enemy of the police, thus he was the friend of the people. Quite a while, it was also theorized that Scrooge might be, in fact, a police officer himself. Even the task force had conducted quite a bit of research on this, because the idea was rather plausible if you think about it. Scrooge's uncanny ability to stay one step ahead for years could conclusively be explained that way. To illustrate, consider these examples. In October of 1992, the investigative team discovered that Scrooge purchased most of his electronic bomb components from a specific retailer, prompting them to deploy undercover agents throughout the stores. However, as soon as this strategy was implemented, Scrooge began sourcing his supplies elsewhere. Then there was the matter of the telephone booths. Following the attack in Hamburg, Scrooge had started communicating his demands via public telephones instead of an elaborate radio transmitter. However, he had only used those located in the far west of Berlin. As soon as the police noticed the pattern and commenced surveillance on all West Berlin telecommunication points, Scrooge started calling from the east. That's pretty suspicious, right? That's going to look like you've got some inside knowledge, for sure. There were numerous indications that suggested privileged inside knowledge, a topic which incited widespread media speculation. These bad optics intensified the public relations nightmare, exacerbating the already rampant distrust. In reality, Arno never had any access to classified information. He was simply a person of far-sightedness and intelligence, peppered with a healthy dash of luck. And then there was the dog poop incident. Don't try and even get me started on the dog poop incident, but oh boy, here we go. So. In the aftermath of the Hanover explosion, which injured two people, Arno put forward a new demand for money. His chosen method of exchange was reminiscent of the successful strategy from 1988, where police would yeet the money from a moving train. This time, however, Arno added a tactical twist. The use of a bridge as the drop point. Oh my god, that's exactly what I said. The simplicity and elegance of this plan lay in Arno's positioning beneath the bridge while the train passed overhead. This setup would make it extremely challenging for the officers to halt the vehicle and descend to his location, affording Arno ample time to gather the dropped cash and make his escape on a bike. There was no need for intricate gadgetry or complex preparations. The location itself provided the perfect advantage. However, this was the third consecutive handover attempt revolving around a moving train. His over-reliance on this methodology had made it predictable. 
too predictable, perhaps. The task force had been graced with plenty of time to consider all imaginable train-related scenarios and concoct an effective countermeasure. As Arno's call came through and the details of the train connection were shared, Delecki had to stifle a triumphant cheer. They had a corresponding plan for this specific track section in the draw. In no time, they all sprang into action, stationing covert law officers at every critical juncture. When Arno arrived an hour after the police had taken position, he was entirely oblivious to the fact that the vicinity was teeming with policemen. It sounds like he's about to get arrested. The bridge spanned across a bustling intersection at the heart of Berlin, so the throng of people muddling about was an ordinary sight. Yet Arno appeared to be an anomaly amidst the crowd. His demeanor was conspicuously normal. He also seemed to be in a state of passive anticipation, unlike the others who were eagerly caught in the city's heartbeat. Michael Jahn, a seasoned member of the Berlin SEK team, basically the German SWAT equivalent, okay, took note of this peculiar man and began to close the gap, inching towards him with calculated caution. But when Arno's face fell upon the approaching undercover officer, a creeping sensation tingled up his spine. The telltale scent of the law seemed to emanate from the man's very movements. Their eyes locked, if only for an infinitesimal instant, before Arno, like a startled hare, leapt onto his bicycle, feet thrashing against the pedals. Officer Yarn lunged, his fingers barely grazing Arno's jacket, but Lady Lark, in a cruel twist of fate, had another plan. His foot met a slick glare of wet leaves, sending him sprawling onto the hard pavement. Arno, once again, managed to escape without money, but also without a trace. But bad news, this guy, the SEK guy, he's just full-on seen your face, and they're gonna have a proper sketch of you now. The Build, a German tabloid giant, was the first to splash the story across the pages, but not without adding their own bit of creative license. In their version, the innocent pile of leaves had been replaced with a heap of steaming dog poop. I am not kidding. Reading the build is like playing two truths and a lie, but with three lies. Imagine toilet paper that screams vaguely racist misinformation at you. Sounds very similar to the Daily Mail. This basically the business model, allegedly, in my opinion. <laughs> Nonetheless, their embellished retelling in quotes, of events was echoed uncritically across the whole media landscape, sparking a bunch of pathetically unfunny puns as newspaper headlines. Those only work in German, of course, but here's an English one that I came up with. Scrooge McDuck case is still a poo done it. I can't believe I'm getting played for this. Please like and subscribe. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's so bad, it's good. Zalecki, along with the rest of the police force, was profoundly infuriated. Even if their work had not been above valid criticism, they did not deserve to be dragged through the mud like this. Yeah, it does. Like, calling for his resignation because he can't close a case just feels super harsh. Delecki had worked tirelessly to the point of jeopardizing his own health, only to find himself the subject of ridicule and derision nonetheless. Also, the dog poop incident had completely eclipsed the significant breakthrough. Michael Yarn's exceptional awareness had led them to a highly accurate sketch of the elusive criminal, a fact which was now buried under the mockery. Besieged by frustration, Zalecki resolved to limit his interactions with the press to absolute minimum. However, there was one individual with whom he maintained regular communication, Scrooge. As mentioned earlier, Arno had become less and less risk-averse, opting for public phone booths instead of double-relayed radio transmitters. He would communicate with two people, Klaus Springborn, who was a police officer pretending to be an employee of Karstadt, and occasionally with Zalecki himself representing the police. The phone conversations between them bore an uncanny resemblance to friendly banter, akin to old buddy plotting their weekend escapades. This does sound like, um, Catch Me If You Can, doesn't it? Because they, they would phone each other and stuff. This informal style wasn't without its strategic motives, though. Delecki hoped that by engaging Scrooge in casual conversation, he might inadvertently reveal crucial information about his identity. While this outcome never materialized, the phone calls did lose their professionalism over time, becoming increasingly relaxed with each iteration. But, I mean, isn't that Delecki doing his job? Like, he's doing these phone calls, so... Um, Arno thinks he's his mate, 
and we'll catch him and even if he is becoming friendly with him he's still doing his job again this was mainly tactics exactly but i like to imagine that it transcended this to some extent in fact i suspect both arno and inspector delecky genuinely enjoyed talking to each other and there are examples to illustrate this for instance on one occasion in early 1993 delecky tried to convince scrooge to postpone a handover by a couple of days because the sek team required more time for preparations <laughs> swat's not ready for you can you wait a couple of days of course he did not disclose the true reason for his request instead he informed scrooge that he could not make the original date because a family member was getting married oh okay that makes more sense after a moment of silence scrooge retorted in a mockingly crestfallen tone that's it oh for a second i thought you were about to invite me they had a good laugh and then scrooge agreed to reschedule <laughs> <laughs> oh god and then later on he's like how was the wedding and uh, like he's like what wedding oh yeah it's great yeah it's great yes yeah, nothing to do with swat teams nothing it's great it's a beautiful wedding it was cake during this phase of our story there was a total of 20 failed money handover attempts each one more absurd than the next in april of 1993 for example scrooge told the police to place the money in a so-called grit box located near a parking lot a grit box is like it's in quotes here but i think i know what it is it's like that thing that contains salted gravel that you put on the the roads when it gets snowy that's the thing we have in the uk is that an american thing if you're unfamiliar with the concept of a grit box let me explain in countries where winter weather can make roads and walkways treacherous local authorities often install these boxes at crucial points filled with a combination of sand and salt they provide a way to spread grit on icy surfaces to enhance traffic and prevent traffic accidents yes definitely in this case however the grip was rigged with a secret arno had sawed a hole in its bottom and strategically placed it over a manhole his plan was to remain hidden in the sewer enabling him to connect the money without having to approach the box from above that's kind of genius but things didn't go as planned but apparently not genius enough when the police officers unaware of arno's lurking below deposited the money into the box one of them questioned whether the concealed tracking device nestled among the counterfeit bills was activated they're still in the counterfeit bills <laughs> hearing this conversation through the bottom of the box arno swiftly bolted across the sewer system emerging from a different manhole cover for his escape a few hours later a flock of journalists ambushed inspector delecky who was still busy scouring the parking lot for evidence the only response he would offer to the media was his unofficial catchphrase I have nothing to say other handover attempts involved a remote control lorry booby traps connected to fireworks a miniature submarine as well as a mountain gorilla trained in archery <laughs> surely not and even though i completely made that last one <laughs> yes thank you i think you get the overall idea it was a never-ending heist movie with a steadily growing fan base but they did it 20 times and he didn't get his money where's he getting all the money to do this elaborate shit from i thought he was running out yet despite arno's brilliance and creativity each of these ploys had led to nothing but another draw followed by a subsequent phone call in which both teams paid respect to the other and wished good luck for their next matchup so to speak good times good times <laughs> pretty wild the banality of evil now you might have noticed the subtle shift in tonality over the last few pages i have indeed it's become more ridiculous friendly what started as a gloomy noir thriller gradually transformed into a light-hearted crime comedy starring adam sandler and nicholas cage i'd watch the shit out of that perhaps you also sensed that at some point the focus shifted from the money to the thrill of the game after all there have been 20 failed attempts so why even bother to continue either overhaul the strategy or stop entirely there is a certain element of insanity in unsuccessfully trying the same thing again and again unless of course you are participating purely for the heck of it perhaps arno had become an adrenaline addict or maybe the intellectual tug of war had outstripped the allure of any monetary reward maybe the true treasure was the enemies he made along the way while there is certainly truth 
in these observations the overarching situation was anything but fun and games the dark underbelly persisted yeah it's a lot of police time and effort and expense being wasted on this by late 1993, Arno was officially broke. His family relied on social benefits, which strangers marriage, marriage to the point of regular fights. Supporting a son without a stable income proved challenging, as the ruling coalition of conservative and free market parties hated the poor and went out of their way to put needy families through every hardship that the constitution allowed. Wow, I didn't know Germany went, had that in the 90s. I imagine Germany, t- I don't know much about Germany's political situation, but I imagine it's a fairly robust welfare state today wouldn't it be it's germany it's got lots of money they spread it around don't they let me know germans in the comments do you have a robust welfare state i'd say the uk's welfare state is quite robust it reminds me of that mitchell and webb sketch <laughs> you guys seen that show it's amazing and there's this one where the politician's having a discussion and some conservative politician or i'm sure he's meant to be conservative is like listen everybody i i, I just want to suggest have you considered just killing the poor <laughs> <laughs> savage so funny with his back against the wall arno blew up two more card stat locations after closing hours one in berlin and one in bielefeld which does in fact exist i double checked oh that's the town was that undercoding the unknown where it, on, on this show or was it on this show where it was like it's this town that people in germany they have this running joke that it doesn't exist but instead of giving the police another easygoing call arno pens a letter a very sinister one apparently you still think i'm one willing to kill people he wrote you are leaving me with no other choice but to prove you wrong if you use fake money one more time i will do it and thus the narrative arc comes full circle in two ways just like in 1998 it was the mall's management that offered to pay the 1.4 million german marks that arno requested enough money to purchase either 2.25 million square meters of bubble wrap or approximately 36 giraffes 55 on the black market so the price of a giraffe a giraffe so expensive seems like a lot also reminiscent of 1998 arno reverted to his most basic approach instructing the police to simply throw the money from a train his least intricate yet most effective method so far at this point the entire german law enforcement found themselves at war with scrooge mcduck everyone was involved in the case in some capacity the higher-ups continued sifting through the seemingly endless list of suspects while frontline staff nationwide were told to prepare for day x yet there was one crucial difference from the previous situation as the calendar of 1993 approached its final chapter the onset of christmas season pulsated with relentless momentum the malls had turned into entirely different universes awash with a flickering light silver garlands and decorative tinsel that hung from the tall ceilings like icicles the press of people was dizzying human rivers flowed with casual urgency carrying shopping bags heavy with treasures children trotted alongside their parents faces alight with the magic of the season tugging at coat sleeves to point at mesmerizing window displays and amidst the picturesque scene of festive merriment the ominous presence of an unidentified bomber who now posed a very credible threat of death and destruction the emerging crisis was so deeply affecting public safety that it commanded the immediate involvement of the political realm by early december the berlin senator for internal affairs recognizing the gravity of the situation called delecki into his office the directive was clear and non-negotiable implement the non-confrontational fulfillment strategy this was as you may have guessed a sophisticated euphemism for simply giving up in this volatile period bristling with unpredictability the governing officials opted to not gamble with the stakes so high therefore they set aside any elaborate schemes or underhand tactics no snares no surveillance devices not a single hidden agenda they were finally prepared to placate arno with a straightforward payment no strings attached in a small office within the labyrinth of berlin city hall arno had been declared the winner and then 
A couple of weeks later, something extraordinary occurred. I mean, he's sort of the winner, but it doesn't end because what's to stop him from doing it again? And then surely the police investigation will pick up because he's not just gone quietly away with 1.4 million. Surely at some point he'll be back when he spent the 1.4. The streets buzzed around Andreas Bloom. There's a note for me, name changed upon request, okay. A seasoned member of the Special Operations Unit. He was maneuvering an unmarked high-performance vehicle down a vibrant boulevard close to the heart of the city. Despite the surrounding bustle, Bloom's mind was engrossed in an imminent operation. He was tasked with preparations for the handover of a sizable 1.4 million marks. The high-stakes event required meticulous planning and left no room for error, hence the intense focus of his thoughts. Throughout the last several weeks, there have been several attempts to hand over the cash to the extortionists, yet it was Scrooge who had either failed to show up or asked to change the day, location, or method last minute, as if it suddenly lacked the self-confidence that had defined him before. As he neared a busy intersection, the traffic light flicked to red. Almost mechanically, Bloom shifted the car into neutral and gently pressed the brake pedal. The car slowed and came to a halt, offering him a brief moment of solitude amidst his high-octane life. During this moment, his gaze inadvertently drifted to the vehicle in front of him. It was a nondescript white car that blended seamlessly into the urban landscape, but something about it caught his eye. A small window at the rear granted a glimpse into the vehicle's trunk. Peering through the semi-transparent glass, Bloom discerned the shape of a bicycle, an ordinary everyday item at first glance, yet its distinct details were eerily familiar. The rusted metal frame, the mismatched wheel spokes, and the seat covered in worn-out duct-tape leather. It wasn't just any bicycle. It was a distinctive one that had come across before in the line of duty. Was it the exact same bicycle Scrooge had used on the day of the dog poop incident? It perfectly matched his colleague's description. A rush of adrenaline then surged through Bloom's veins as he grabbed his radio device and relayed the number plate to Ulrich Tiller's office, who served as head of operations. Tiller immediately dropped everything and had the license plate checked. As it turns out, the vehicle in question was a rental car, currently held by a man named Arno Martin Franz Funke. In a subsequent documentary, Inspector Tiller would reflect on the unforgettable nature of that particular day. Quote, the car had been leased precisely on the day scheduled for a money handover, and after the transfer had failed, the rental contract was extended until the follow-up handover attempt. Things like these do not happen by chance. The news spread like wildfire, searing its way through the tight-knit network of local and national police agencies. They quickly discovered a plethora of other strange coincidences that linked Arno to the crimes, albeit only via circumstantial evidence. The crucial element eluded them still irrefutable proof, a proverbial smoking gun that would incontrovertibly reveal Arno to be behind the crimes that had shaken the nation. At this point, if they arrest him and bring him in and then search all this stuff, won't they find like the bomb-making stuff and the evidence of the money and they can follow that and figure it out and get to... They've got this, uh, what's it called? Circumstantial evidence. And now they're looking for proof. But I feel like the circumstantial evidence is enough to arrest him and then get that proof. Although maybe they're going to be cleverer than that and like catch him in the act or something. In the weeks that followed, a select team of surveillance experts was dispatched with a singular task, to shadow Arno's every move. They watched with hawk-like precision as Arno went about his daily routines, each one seeming to be just as mundane as the last. Arno would drop his son off at the local kindergarten, his fatherly affection belying the monstrous accusations leveled against him. He would be seen shopping at the neighborhood supermarket, his grocery cart filled with the most ordinary of household items. bread milk, a selection of fresh fruits and vegetables. His interactions with his neighbors were fleeting, yet polite. A quick nod, a brief exchange of pleasantries, nothing that would indicate his potential for malevolence. In fact, his behavior was so impeccably ordinary, his face so remarkably unremarkable, that it began to sow seeds of doubt within the ranks of the observation unit. Could this unassuming average Joe really be a criminal mastermind? 
without equal, a puppeteer pulling at the strings of chaos and destruction. The dichotomy was startling, and the quest for the truth unending. They had followed Arno for weeks without obtaining any concrete evidence. And then on the 22nd of April 1994, the day of the grand finale arrived. Surely you were expecting a dramatic climax, with Delecki and Arno having a sword duel over the mouth of a volcano or something like that. Honestly, it's been so cinematic so far, it wouldn't surprise me. How does Catch Me If You Can end? How does he eventually get him? He finds him in a French... The French get him, right? He's found He gets him out of a French prison or something like that? Isn't that right? I should watch that movie again. It's been a while. I've seen it many times. It's so good. In the beginning of this episode, I stated that the case of Scrooge McDuck resembles an over-the-top Netflix series, but unfortunately, this includes the way things end <laughs> disappointingly and without a second season despite popular demand. <laughs> yeah, Netflix makes some cracking shows. I recently was watching... um. Is it is it the diplomat about the American ambassador who gets sent to London with her husband and all of this stuff? Amazing! It felt like it was like clearly inspired by Sorkin's writing, and it was I enjoyed it a great deal, especially the early episodes. And but then you see some other Netflix shows, and oh my god, this is such garbage. <laughs> Not to name names, but there's some really bad Netflix shows. At roughly 5pm, Arno Funke entered a phone booth, called the police, introduced himself as Scrooge, and relayed some instructions regarding the still outstanding payment of 1.4 million marks. After he hung up, the harsh screech of tires echoed from every direction as policemen swarmed out of unmarked vehicles, their pistols trained on him like magnetic needles drawn to north. Arno nodded as if to say, well done, and with a mild smile on his face, after a short pause for dramatic effect. He loud and clearly declared, I am Iron Man. <laughs> I mean Scrooge. He said, I am Scrooge. You know, there is this old expression which states, never meet your heroes, implying that getting to know a public figure would likely be a letdown. And sure enough, there is a common fallacy governing many fandoms and parasocial relationships, confusing the cultivated persona for the person behind it. This also applies to Simon, for instance. You may think of him as a chill and humble dude, but once you get to know him off screen, you might realize he's that the... You might come to realize that the running gag about his basement prison is in fact not a joke and we actually need help. <laughs> The fact that you're saying it's not a joke makes it sound like it's not actually a joke and the police are going to come to my house. Oh, why? Yet to every rule, there are exceptions, and one of those was Arno Funke. When the true face of Scrooge was revealed to the public, people fell in love with him all over again, as he not only confirmed their expectations, he exceeded them. There is a particularly surreal moment of television history that demonstrates my point very well. The scene unfolds within the austere confines of a Berlin detention center, a place you would expect to be thick with tension and trepidation. Arno is seen comfortably surrounded by a group of policemen, as if he was an esteemed member of their ranks. He doesn't appear to be a captive, but rather an old friend. He is seen sharing laughs with the officers, but not in a big-headed way. His smile relaxed, the absurdity of the situation underscored by a glint of boyish mischief in his eyes. Suddenly, a journalist materializes into the frame, thrusting a microphone under Arno's nose and quips, Not exactly a great day for you, is it? Arno chuckles a bit, casting a knowing glance at the officers as if they were all in on some grand joke, and sheepishly replies, Ah oh, well, you know, a tad stressful, truth be told. Then he nonchalantly saunters off with the officers, disappearing around the corner, and the punchline to this whole charade. This bizarre theatre unfolded only half an hour after Arno's initial arrest. He had been put in handcuffs, he had been chauffeured to the detention centre, and then he found himself before a camera immediately while sharing laughs with the very people who had just arrested him after a four-year-long manhunt. I think the big thing is he never hurt anybody. And that's like, that's a big thing. Like, 
Oh, he did hurt some people, didn't he? There was that bomb that went off and they got the bomb shock or whatever it was called. But he never killed anybody, that's what I'll say. Inspector Delecki, however, was not present. When he heard about Scrooge's arrest, he escaped the hustle and bustle because his service was no longer required, as he put it. Instead of seeking the next best camera team in order to finally report on a success, he simply got into his car and drove into the sunset like an old-fashioned movie cowboy because he knew what would happen next. The world exploded. This would be the moment in the movie. Like, he catches his guy, it's all done, and then the cameras are waiting for him and instead he just gets into his car and there's like a long shot of him just driving staring off into the distance just driving and then it fades to black and then there's you know like at the end of every based on a tree story movie there's pictures from of the real people and there's like text saying what happened next that's where it would end i reckon look <laughs> netflix i i could direct that <laughs> I couldn't. I know nothing about direction. The media, but that would be a good ending. The media pounced on the arrest with an intensity matching the moon landing. Words cannot describe the metaphorical earthquake that shook the nation. A depressing day for anarchists, one news anchor stated, but also for many good citizens. The hero, Scrooge McDuck, has been both arrested and demystified. Another channel felt moved to the point of poetry and commented on it like this. Dear Zeitgeist, you had such a beautiful symbol. Scrooge was a cult figure of all-round displeasure with the authorities. We as a society have constructed him we have created him in our own image on the surface a random extortionist had been caught that day but this extortionist represented more than just a series of crimes he indeed served as a reflection of his time the essence of a nation in desperate search of an identity arno was a symbol for many things but first and foremost he embodied the overcoming of the inner german division by blowing up iron department's doors he spoke from the soul of those who detested western capitalism and by humiliating the police he deeply touched those who had still unresolved scars from the stasi tyranny imagine a lens that concentrated all the pent-up emotions from 40 years of sorrow and yearning for unity though arnu had never cared much for politics he became that lens people did not see a criminal on their screens they watched a piece of themselves a berlin newspaper captured the sentiment very well by printing a headline both hyperbolic and adequate scrooge mcduck has been arrested for our sins according to some youtube comments on my previous episodes people seem to assume that i'm rather old although i do consider myself ready for retirement the hard evidence on my birth certificate suggests that i've barely turned 30. <laughs> i also assume i don't know why dennis i also assumed for some reason you were older than me and i'm six years older than you okay this is important because i don't know why i assumed you were older you just seem smart <laughs> Like, for some reason, all smart people have to be older than me. But it does feel that way sometimes, doesn't it? This is important because I have no first-hand experience with the political climate I tried to convey. I've never directly been affected by German division. Thus, the deep emotional tremors these evokes provoked in many are a matter of attempted empathy for me, not personal recollections. Besides, I perceive overly nationalistic mindsets as cartography-based esotericism. Therefore, I am not connected to Germany through strong patriotic feelings. Being randomly born within these borders is not a personal achievement, not a part of my identity. As a result, I mean, yeah, I guess I feel similar. It's like, yeah, you're just born where you're born, aren't you? But it's part of my identity through it. It's the language that I speak. It's the culture that I was raised in. So in that way, it's part of my identity. I don't particularly, it's not a large part of my identity, but it's definitely like being British is a part of who I am, I suppose. I don't take any pride in it. That would be different. As a result, I really struggle to understand how some people had full-blown mental breakdowns upon Scrooge's downfall, collapsing in front of their TVs as if the world was ending. Then again, I suffered my last mental crisis after learning that Chester Bennington, who had always meant more to me than I could ever rationally explain, had died from depression. So I guess people felt roughly the same about Arno's arrest. I really don't know. Chester Bennington. <laughs> There's no explanation. No, like, is this guy so famous that I should know who he is? And, oh my god, he's the first guy to come up under Chester. Chester Bennington. Chazzy Chess. 
Oh no, I'm on the Czech page. Let me see. Here's the English one. Was an American singer, best known as the lead vocalist of Linkin Park. Oh, I've heard of Linkin Park. I didn't know he died. Oh. Rest in peace. In the days that followed, journalists meticulously dissected every facet of Arno's existence. They sought out interviews with former colleagues, broadcasted exterior shots of his suburban residence, and ushered a parade of so-called criminal profilers onto their news sets, all the while stoking the fires of sensationalism to a fever pitch. Demonstrations of peaceful protest arose at the gates of Plotzensi prison, with citizens insisting on Arno's immediate release. Yet despite these fervent pleas, Arno was not exonerated. Well, not in the conventional sense. You see, the subsequent trial sharply contrasted with the nature of the crimes. It was remarkably uneventful. Evidence was scrutinized, witnesses testified, and legal arrangements volleyed back and forth. It's important to note the stark cultural divergence between Central Europe and the United States regarding judicial proceedings, as they're typically not designed for public amusement among civilized nations. <laughs> yeah. American courts are wild, like televised it's like broadcasting the news people follow along there's a big show people dance in front of a jury it's great i'm watching that show um uh i can't remember the name of it is it called jury is it called jury duty with um the guy from james marsden the actor james marsden who i mostly know from spike from buffy the vampire slayer but he's done loads of other shit and he's in this show where there's a jury and he's the only there's there's everyone's an actor except for this one dude and i think he thinks he's part of a documentary but really he's just being set up in this show it's, it's quite amusing it's quite amusing this is great because this way i can summarize the trial within a paragraph rather than sprawling across numerous chapters but to inject a dash of suspense simon feel free to take a brief pause and try and predict the verdict it will be revealed in the next sentence he's got to be guilty right i'm guessing guilty um and then a very very light sentence is my is my feeling right now he can't be not guilty he's admitted to it or it's he's like saying yeah he's pleading guilty and he gets a light sentence surely he has to serve some time surely there's some time being served <laughs> okay at the trial Arno, Arno was handed a sentence of seven years and nine months for aggravated predatory extortion okay that seems reasonable surprisingly lenient isn't it no, oh, I'd say that's fair. He didn't kill anybody. He intentionally didn't kill anybody. He tried to extort some people for money. I would say that's fairly fair, if not on the higher end of things. Like, this guy didn't hurt anybody. I'm all for, like, for people who murder people, like like the people we cover on this show, I'm all for throwing them in prison and throwing away the key, to be honest, sometimes. But this this seems fair. I mean, I'm probably fine with the punishment for the bombing stuff, but I would have expected 150 additional life sentences for infringing on the copyright of a Disney character. Irrespective of the circumstances, there exists an unequivocal boundary past which the severity of a crime simply cannot be tolerated. I'm looking at the cover of a... Whoops. I'm looking at the cover of the book and knowing how litigious Disney is. I'm surprised he got away with this. Like, I know it's obviously a photograph of, like, a Disney toy, but Disney would be like, That's our image! Disney's crazy with this. Oh, it's all in German. I'm like, who took the photograph on the cover? It's all in bloody German. But all jokes aside, the public prosecutor was indeed not satisfied with the ruling, so he successfully appealed for a harsher punishment. A year later, the Berlin Regional Court concurred and extended Arno's incarceration to nine years, albeit with the possibility of earlier release after just six. During the trial, Arno's identity as Scrooge was never in question. Everyone knew he did it, and nobody contested that. The crux of the matter lay in his culpability. Multiple expert evaluations concluded early in the proceedings that Arno wasn't mentally stable during his criminal activities. He was battling severe depression, and as later discovered, he had suffered brain damage due to the exposure 
exposure to toxic lacquer paint. Both factors could potentially lessen the severity of his punishment. The degree to which they should was at the heart of the debate. Judge Scholes ultimately determined Arno to bear diminished criminal culpability. He quoted several psychological evaluations in his ruling, according to which Arno had only possessed partial control over his actions due to his neurobiological challenges. However, the judge was also quick to emphasize that his conclusion was in no way trivializing the seriousness of Arno's actions. Yet when someone is accused of a crime they committed out of compulsion, you cannot hold them entirely accountable for that, can you? In all honesty, this line of reasoning had me stumped. While I certainly agree to the general idea of diminished culpability, I cannot bring myself to believe that this applies to Arno's case in any way. I can. I think I can. Um, I believe he's responsible for his actions. I believe there's some amount of diminishment because he originally got into these crimes because he was depressed and he was like, I literally have nothing else to lose. I'm just going to see if I can feel something by being a criminal. That to me is, that speaks of... Uh, something unusual and i think there is diminishment there as for the later ones i'm not so sure that applies so i'd give him some diminished culpability on the first and then probably reduce the diminished culpability later as mentioned before i've discussed this case with a local psychotherapist who was super eager to lend her expertise though she asked me to keep her identity private i'm not sure if simon is fully aware of this but he's quite the household name here in germany is that true is that true that's nice I was, I mean, I know Germany, you see, like, obviously, my content's in English, so you look at these. Like, America is by far the largest audience. Hello, Americans. There's so many of you. And then it's UK, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Um, did I say Australia? Like, the big English-speaking countries. And then Germany. Uh, maybe Germany's above South Africa. There's lots of Germans. Um, but, like, the big English-speaking countries. And then Germany's always up there, which is nice. But it's it's a small percentage but that's nice to know. Sometimes I feel like everyone follows at least one or two of his channels, thus being associated with him. It opens quite a lot of doors. Well, brilliant. I, I, I honestly did not know that or expect that. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice this has been my experience in past episodes as well with one notable exception people were not only willing to help they've been positively thrilled at the prospect this is especially true when pronouncing your own name a little bit unclearly so people assume they're going to be in a video written by danny <laughs> anyway she asked me to once again make double extra super sure that she's not just diagnosing anyone as this would obviously require a comprehensive assessment on her part she has never met arno in her life so everything below this line is to be considered speculation she provided me with general knowledge projecting it onto arno is your task if you should want it with that out of the way there are a couple of things to say first of all depression is not usually correlated with criminal activities depressive disorders may come with a wide range of complex symptoms but in most cases it entails a debilitating and all-encompassing lack of motivation to do even the most basic things such as eating working or simply getting out of bed arno in my personal opinion was likely the most motivated person imaginable the sheer amount of long-term planning researching and self-optimizing is essentially the opposite of the archetypal depressed person this of course does not imply that Arno was not very seriously depressed. He certainly was. Any mental condition can manifest in a vast variety of ways, so a highly motivated depressed person is entirely within the realm of possibilities. But to say that the depression directly contributed to his criminal career does seem like a bit of a stretch to me. I... <laughs> this is a psychiatrist, a psychologist, psychiatrist? I don't know. It doesn't matter. An expert saying this. So obviously I'm wrong. But it did seem like it kind of kicked it off. He was so depressed, he was like, I've got nothing else to live for, so I might as well give crime a crack. <laughs> like, 
that does seem to be the instigating event is his depression there are mental disorders that can act as a catalyst for criminal activities such as antisocial personality disorder or narcissism however none of these have ever been suspected in arno's case at least not to my knowledge and even if they had one must keep in mind that such statistical correlations only emerge within enormously huge sample sizes and must never be applied to individuals without conducting individual evaluations regarding the brain damage caused by the spray paint it is safe to assume that this altered his decision-making abilities a lot there are numerous case studies showing severe changes in temperament with people affected by similar poisons over long periods of time interestingly those victims also tend to show substantial decline in intellectual ability yet arno managed to become the jigsaw of money transfer mechanisms while outwitting several thousand police officers for years as a matter of fact arno had been subjected to an iq test during the trial with a result of 145 which is very high that places him in the top 0.15 percent of the general population one could only wonder what score he would have achieved if the brain damage had never occurred as a reminder just to make extra triple ultra mega sure we're still only speculating here but in my personal opinion i'm still not entirely convinced somebody who could build bombs and multi-layered trap devices should also be able to conclude that it is ethically wrong to do so and as a matter of fact arno did know he was doing wrong he told us in his autobiography remember taking his own words seriously he was permanently plagued by a guilty conscience and ethical qualms by presenting himself in a sensible self-conscious light he somehow refuted his own legal defense strategy then again isn't arno the epitome of inner contradictions in general yes indeed look i'm just a humble idiot with a keyboard yet i do feel like arno was very aware of everything he did and his actions felt very controlled in a way this must be considered a noble trait i cannot recall any other true crime story with this amount of consideration on the culprit's part yeah self-ownership is fairly rare in uh in these stories it's always someone else's fault but at the same time it is challenging for me to reconcile this image with the depiction of an unhinged maniac so bereft of control over his actions that one could absolve him of personal accountability for me these ideas simply do not harmonize and i agree i just don't think it's a black and white question of yes or no i think it's gray and i think to some degree in my opinion like again i'm not even a <laughs> i'm not even a psychologist trying to analyze him like without seeing him i'm just a dude with a microphone but i think to some degree this affected him like his brain was all poisoned from paint and he was very clearly mega depressed so i think yes to some degree but also i'd say like 30 percent is where i'd say it's very specific <laughs> that's my vibe during his imprisonment arno received psychotherapy and a number of other treatments to address his neurological damage resulting in a remarkable improvement in his overall well-being the persistent state of disorientation and dizziness gradually dissipated completely prompting arno to later express profound gratitude for the medical care he received while incarcerated in the retrospectives arno tended to downplay his time in jail often referring to it as not that bad despite the threat of boredom his ever-present nemesis in a twist of dramatic irony his childhood experiences with confinement in barren rooms had somewhat equipped him with coping strategies for his incarceration he once again found solace in his drawing pen a mental escape from his monotonous life in prison he would keep his hands busy by working for a satirical magazine called uhlenspiegel where he contributed both caricatures and cartoon sketches this engagement would extend even beyond his time behind bars as a second method that's nice he's got a, like a job a creative job while in prison like not a prison job like folding laundry but an actual outside job 
And does he get paid for this? Because then it will like build up a nice little sum of money for when he gets out, right? As a second method to subduing the ticking clock, Arno had even opted to attend the prison church services, an unusual choice for a non-believer, though better than nothing, I suppose. A consistent stream of fan mail in volumes verging on the unimaginable furnished further distraction from the dreary walls. However, with each passing week, the pile of fresh letters dwindled. Arno's stint in prison barely exceeded the absolute minimum duration. After just six years and four months, he was granted early release for good conduct. On the 13th of August, 2000, Arno regained his freedom. From handcuffs, I realized like I was a bit... Earlier on, I was kind of like, oh, he only got... He, he, seven years feels fair and stuff. But then now I'm thinking about that. And it's like he built bombs. He was a terrorist, basically. Which, uh... Now I feel like, yeah, terrorists have to go to prison for a long time. So I'm feeling this is more and more lenient towards, leaning towards lenient slash fair. From handcuffs to handshakes. Upon his release in the summer of 2000, Arno found himself in a world transformed, arguably for the better. Political tensions had abated, and faith in law enforcement was largely restored. Arno, once a beacon of dissidence, was no longer needed in that role, and as fate would have it, he was no longer available for the job anyway. He stepped onto the stage of freedom as a reformed man, a reborn phoenix, on a quest to find peace and quiet beyond Scrooge McDuck. Also, he claimed, but was this actually the case? I'd say a big potential yes, because... He went to prison and he got psychotherapy and treatment for his, I, I assume, for the paint stuff, but also for his depression. So entirely possible that he is now a different, or not a different person, but like a non-depressed less paint-poisoned individual. You see, accusations of calculated fame-seeking had frequently been hurled at Arno. It is certainly not far-fetched to arrive at this conclusion, though it must be said that Arno consistently and somewhat convincingly refuted these allegations time and again. As an earth, I was in this dude's position. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, I'm gonna write an autobiography and I'm gonna go on a speaking tour. Hell yeah, pay me! Let's make some money! <laughs> like, legitimately, about my crimes. <laughs> But that's fine. You can talk about you. You've served your, you've served your time. Just make sure in those speeches that you don't reveal crimes that you didn't reveal before. Okay? His original plunge into criminality was obviously not driven by the allure of fame. I think we can all agree on that. Whether he grew fond of his anonymous notoriety throughout his subsequent career remains largely a matter of speculation. But I don't think so. Up to the point of his arrest, Arno never engaged with his cult following. He never released a public statement. He never addressed his fan base in any way whatsoever. He did, however, try really hard to keep his star burning after his prison time. There! He's an ex-con! Like, his career prospects are not going to be brilliant now. So, fair enough. Fair enough! An astonishing array of interviews stand as testament to this, supplemented by an even more extensive parade of appearances in various entertainment programs. For example, Arno Abbott navigated the Australian wilderness of I'm a Celebrity, get me out of it. No, he didn't. A brain-dead reality show where minor celebrities face a jungle-themed boot camp, challenged both physically and in their ability to withstand the dumbest dialogues imaginable. Yes. Yeah, I think I saw the first season of that when I was a kid. It's bad. He also competed in the culinary arena of The Perfect Dinner, Celebrity Edition, vying against other familiar faces to prove his prowess in both cooking and hosting. Mind you, these are but the tip of the iceberg when it comes to his lowbrow reality TV engagements. Better be known that I undertook the masochistic task of sifting through all of these appearances, a multi-day marathon of misery that left me emotionally drained, hollow and dead inside. Yeah, reality TV has an ability, doesn't it? His ability to do that. Also, I've mentioned the overabundance of 
of interviews, but the funny thing is, a lot of them were entirely unrelated to his crimes. One that particularly surprised me was about personal finance. <laughs> You'd think Arno was the last person you should ask about financial responsibility. Yet there he was, featured on a major podcast sponsored by Sparkass, a major German bank. I know Sparkass. <laughs> In Germany, I'm always like, ah, Sparkass. It's spelled S-P-A-R-K-A-S-S. E. Sparkass. It is arguably the second most pointless semi-business-related podcast on YouTube, but one line that had me especially stumped was this. Arno, according to his own statement, does not carry around a passport, because when making large purchases via credit card, he can identify himself by googling his name on his phone and showing the results to whoever asked for his papers. Wait, why would when you're paying by credit card would anyone ask for your ID? Is that a German thing? Is that a German thing? I feel like that's happened to me, and it might have been in Germany. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess I'll just take out my passport and show it to you. This claim not only strikes me as extremely pretentious, but it's also presumably bogus. Yeah, look, as a person who could do that, I would never do that. <laughs> it's super pretentious and weird. And people will be like, it's just more, stop causing me a hassle. Just show me your ID card. Because obviously there is a policy that I have to see your ID card, not Google you. Because that's how the rules work. <laughs> It's like if Bill Murray came in. There's no be like, Bill, I know it's you. I can see it's you, but I still need to see your ID, Bill, because that's the rules, Bill. Everyone not named John Smith will find their face on Google, yet there is good reason why nobody will accept this as a legal document. Can you tell apart Simon and the Vsauce guy from Images Alone? <laughs> yes, I look completely different to the Vsauce guy whose name is Michael. Delving deeper into the vast expanse of Arno's media footprint, a glaring contradiction emerges. The Arno scene in most contexts is a self-effacing figure, modest, self-spoken, and prone to underplay his importance with a tense posture that makes him appear smaller than he was. He often gives the impression as though he's dragged across the camera against his will, but in stark contrast, Arno did pop up in the public eye constantly. Well, I think that's part of the thing, isn't it? Like, if you are hesitant or appearing hesitant, then it's more exciting even if you're actually not hesitant at all and you're giving an interview about personal finance when you stole money. He was involved with political campaigns by endorsing left-wing parties and designing their election posters even though he had claimed to be a non-political person before. In 2007, he even had his own stage show consisting of satirical stories, caricatures, and film spots. He then appeared on a British game show called The Heist where he took the role of an in-game extortionist. The Arno Funke cinematic universe is almost as large as your mum. <laughs> Since roughly 2010, however, the frequency of his gigs has steeply thinned out. Even though he continued to work for Uhlenspiegel, he vanished more and more from the limelight and withdrew to a secluded life. This shouldn't be too much of a surprise given that Arno had entered his 70s and so, like a wizened sage, retreated into the quiet embrace of his own legend. In the first draft of this episode, this line marked the point at which I slowly transitioned to the final wrap-up. But then an unexpected insight dawned on me. You may have noticed that this episode, while recounting true fact, is partially not written in the style of a report, but rather like a novel. It was indeed. I've said this many times reading this. I'm like, this feels like I'm reading a nice book. Got the book reading, you know, vibes. I tinkered with this concept in previous scripts, and the positive response spurred me on to continue the experiment. But it opens Pandora's box of challenges. You see, crime novels often hinge on the intimacy of their characters, painting the storyline with such vibrant details that the audience feels part of the unfolding drama. They offer a voyeuristic journey into the minds of the protagonists, immersing readers into their thoughts and feelings. This is a feat easily accomplished when the characters are products of fiction. As the author, you can simply assign them an interior cosmos at will. However, when venturing into the realm of true crime, this liberty is unavailable. 
So how did I navigate this conundrum? Although this is probably obvious to everybody, let me still spell out our reminder. The nature of this genre demands a degree of artistic interpretation. Any thoughts, emotions, and internal experiences ascribed to the individuals involved are not direct quotes unless indicated as such. They are conjectures derived from an in-depth study of available interviews, reports, biographies, and other related material. I got an email the other day. There's a... There's another unnamed person who covers an, uh, another YouTube channel that is not similar to this one, but occasionally will do a story that is similar or like covers the same person. I got an email from someone being like, hi, I really enjoyed your podcast, but it'd be nice if you could have gone into some of the other details as covered on this channel. And I'm like, you know that channel's semi-fictionalized, right? They're taking... The, the the bones of a story and they're adding a ton of stuff on top of it which isn't necessarily fact and not presented as fact that's the the vibe of the channel and i just realized i'm like what and then i realized oh this person thinks that's all it's all not embellished that it's all like just deeper research and i'm like that's not what that that is My, I, re I report on facts there's no embellishment and they just thought that this unnamed other channel is is all facts when it's not his stories <laughs> which was like weird like sort of insulting but also weird most evolved parties have repeatedly presented their feelings towards the case throughout the years allowing me to heuristically incorporate their inner landscape into this script but on top of that as teased in the introduction i reached out to the elusive mastermind himself and asked for a personal interview as a method to further refine my model of his character i did not really expect him to reply let alone agree to my proposal but after some reluctance on his part and some persistence on mine he ultimately accepted the invitation our conversation took place toward the end of my research phase in preparation for the big day, I had spent some time revisiting his past interviews, only to notice a recurring pattern among them. By asking mostly dull and unapologetically biased questions, they portrayed Arno in a thoroughly positive light. In most cases, this seemed to be intentional, with the journalists even introducing themselves as huge fans. I committed to a different approach. I would not uncritically facilitate Arno's self-portrayal, but instead, I intended to probe, to challenge, to respectfully ask the heart-hitting questions. Yeah, I, that's a absolutely solid and better interview technique it's not a puff piece just go in neutral not good not bad tell me a story i like that it's important to mention however that parts of our exchange have already been incorporated throughout the previous chapters for brevity's sake i'll elegantly sidestep the repetitive elements though it will make the interview appear shorter than it really was the initial segment of the conversation delved into the peculiar affinity between him and the german populace when i broached the subject of the immense and arguably misdirected sympathy scrooge mcduck had been receiving his retort was contemplative and even tempered albeit somewhat anticipated he unequivocally confirmed that it had never been his objective to incite such a whirlwind of public attention although he had foreseen a certain amount of media exposure he found himself unprepared for the variety that was enthusiastically rallying behind him arno further emphasized that having a fan base did not influence his decision making in any way the positive feedback did not push him to continue he explained and there is a convincing argument to back this up as the buzz amplified so did the resources committed to the investigation inadvertently turning every new admirer into a catalyst for a potential capture after all the key to his eventual downfall was the casual recognition of his bicycle one could imagine a parallel reality where scrooge's case commanded less attention resulting in a smaller scaled investigation that occupied fewer officers minds night and day in this universe it's entirely possible that such an elusive detail could have been overlooked I then asked Arno 
for his theories as to why people loved Scrooge quite so much. Echoing my own hypothesis, Arno concurred that people's fondness for his wrongdoings was primarily an expression of latent distrust towards law enforcement. But Arno also acknowledged the entertaining nature of his crimes as he, too, was thoroughly entertained by the discussions and theories that emerged on screen. The choice of his alias, for instance, held no deep meaning. As he had drafted his ransom note demanding the Uncle Scrooge greets his nephew's newspaper ad, his gaze merely chanced upon his son's school bag featuring the character. While he had a passing familiarity with Scrooge McDuck's greedy traits, he had been anything but a Disney aficionado. Consequently, any complex connections drawn between his illicit activities and the animated duck were purely coincidental, yet irresistibly fascinating to him. Despite the passing of time, many still tie you closely with your infamous history. How does this perception impact you? His reply came instantly, but in the form of a question. Well, isn't it a good thing to be liked? People like Scrooge, and I am Scrooge. This statement perplexed me, as it directly contradicted several previous interviews. With unshakable certainty, Arno had consistently emphasized the difference between his former criminal avatar and his true self. Possibly recognizing his Freudian slip in my puzzled reaction, he quickly transitioned to a different topic. Fan mail. He proceeded to elaborate on the countless sentimental letters he had amassed over the years. Up to this day, requests for autographs would pop up among his correspondence, a testament to his long-lasting popularity. Occasionally, he'd even receive heartfelt notes from police officers praising him with phrases like, You were genuinely one of the good ones. Alongside these affirmations, expressions of gratitude had found their way to him, credited to the valuable tactical lessons the law enforcement agencies had gleaned from working his case. Now, if you're raising an eyebrow right now, yeah, I'm pretty skeptical of that. Uh, you're not alone. I initially did not believe this either, yet when I indulged in some fact-checking afterwards, I concluded that his bragging was likely rooted in truth. Although the press office of the German Federal Police did confirm that their tactics are subject to continuous revision and optimization, that seems like the most generic government reply ever. Our, uh, what's their, the global response? We cannot confirm nor deny. They chose not to comment on any specifics regarding the case in question, so I did some digging myself, sifting through police manuals and trainee officer study material. Is that stuff public? That's cool. An endeavor as thrilling as it sounds. Maybe it's not so cool. <laughs> sounds, maybe it's boring. I will spare you the details. However, claim that Arno had influenced the way things are being handled nowadays is not completely untrue, leaving a realistic possibility that people did send him thank you cards. Then again, it is worth noting that current strategic guidelines are heavily shaped by more recent factors, such as advances in forensic technology and legal reform. As far as I can tell, Scrooge McDuck is not a part of the 2023 curriculum. His encounter with hateful remarks, or lack thereof, was another topic of discussion. Not even once was his succinct response. So you never randomly run into someone scolding you for your crimes? I asked. Nope. Never. <laughs> I think I've told this story before. I've only, like, people send me emails all the time being like, I didn't like this! Or on Twitter, I don't like your take on this, fact boy. And it's like, okay, cool. It's only ever happened to me once in real life. <laughs> it's like, I've I must have told this story. It was super uncomfortable. I was just in a pub having a drink, and some guy comes up to me and starts having a go at me about something. And I'm like, bro, this is not appropriate. And he leaves. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that, only once, though. Only once. Everyone's usually super nice. Venturing deeper into the delicate territory, I asked Arno if he's ever worried about inspiring potential copycats, given the cult-like fanbase that had surrounded him. No, he replied after some consideration. I was busy with my own issues, so I never thought about that during the time. Looking at it with the benefit of hindsight, I probably should have. This interview will reach an audience of roughly 150,000 people, I explained. There is a chance that someone watching will feel inspired by your achievements. Is there a message that you'd like to share for someone who could potentially misconstrue your career? 150,000? A little bit. Well, we have to all the podcast. The podcast adds a whole bunch to that. And uh, I hope this is a long one. I think over the long term, this will get more than 150k. It's super hard to predict, especially because there's no horrible murder in this episode. <laughs> Those horrible murder ones tend to do better. Yes, he said. Don't do it. 
I got away with it for years, but you will not. With all the forensic tools available nowadays, you have no chance of succeeding. I waited for a moment, giving him the opportunity to add the moralistic addendum I was expecting, but instead he followed it up with this. You should especially not try this in other global regions. He then referred to the dog poop incident the day the officer had grabbed his jacket and Arno had barely managed to slip away. If this happened in another country, they would have shot me in the back. It's not worth the risk. Frankly, this pragmatic response did not sit well with me as it marked a tonal shift in our conversation. Despite offering him a golden opportunity to show remorse, he had chosen to lament the personal risks that come with aggravated extortion. While Arno may have misunderstood my query, it felt more like an accidental revelation of his true priorities. Again, it is entirely possible that I completely misinterpreted the situation, but I was struck by a sudden suspicion that further intensified throughout the upcoming questions. Let me explain. Arno has consistently portrayed a profound consideration for ethics. We've witnessed this multiple times throughout the last 47 pages. <laughs> We've been here a while, haven't we? But what if beneath the surface, his moral commitments did not truly hold that much weight after all? On countless previous occasions, Arno had elaborated on his decision to spare the innocent, even though the strategy deprived him of leverage. If he had killed random bystanders every now and then, the task force may have been more inclined to give him real money rather than paper scraps. This train of thought is plausible, and in consequence, he has won admiration for his moral integrity. Everyone was convinced that Arno had willingly accepted personal disadvantages to uphold his honorable principles. There's also the thing of if you kill someone, they are uh, you know that's that's murder that's terrorism where someone dies right that's a different crime that's going to get a different response from the police like i feel i guess it was back in the day but like phones are going to be tapped like well, they were doing that anyway i feel like they there would be more attention to it surely but hear me out. Remember five minutes ago when I mentioned his concerns about having huge publicity as this increased the investigation's efforts? Now imagine what would have happened with the scale of the investigation if Arno had decided to become a mass murderer. You see what I'm getting at? Though morality certainly has played a huge role in this decision, it may have also been about risk management. But wait, there's more. In the 90s, the maximum punishment for blowing up places was surprisingly lenient as long as it did not entail any human victims. Also, Arno Walking Encyclopedia Funke was likely aware of this fun fact. So again, ethical compass or calculated risk mitigation, uh, we'll come back to this in a second. And again, I don't think it's one or the other. It's not black and white. It's like, hey, look, I don't have to kill people. That's a win. I don't think, like, yeah, and that's a win, sure. And then also less crime less uh it's less of a less of a, it's a lesser crime i think that's also a win i think it can be both at the same time discussing arno's post-prison life was an intriguing odyssey as well his process of realigning with society or finding his role in the new millennium played no part in our exchange because arno preferred to paint vibrant pictures of his adventures in television reveling amidst the glitz and glam of countless appearances he wove a tale of glamour and fame obviously attempting to impress me he failed I've seen most of his performances. However, the childlike joy he had derived from these televised escapades was palpable, both in his passionate recounts and, upon reflection, in the warm glow his on-screen smile has elicited, had elicited. In the grand tapestry of Arno's life, one marked by a consistent struggle to coax joy from the recesses of his brain, these TV appearances emerged as unlikely springs of happiness. Sometimes joy blooms in the most unforeseen corners, and if Arno's happy place was the stage of low-budget television shows, and who am I to judge, in all honesty? Well, good for him. Yeah, that's fine if that's what he's into. Cool. Then again, without providing me even a slither of opportunity to interject, Arno transitioned to another grandiloquent story about a certain Hollywood producer who once sought him out with a staggeringly lucrative offer. 
This blockbuster magnate had allegedly proposed to transform Arno's kaleidoscopic life into a silver screen epic, a large screen production for the international market. Arno claimed that it entertained the idea for a time, even skillfully, even skillfully negotiated the licensing fee skywards, but after some consideration, he ultimately declined the offer, citing only a single and somewhat surprising reason he didn't like the style of American movies. <laughs> this would be a cracking American movie. <laughs> To say it mildly, I had some doubts about the veracity of this. Arno, a man who had orchestrated the destruction of over half a dozen shopping malls for financial gain, now claimed to have dismissed a veritable fortune out of some newfound artistic conviction. This begged for further scrutiny, yet I neither managed to confirm his story, nor was I able to refute it. I guess we will never know for sure. I don't dis I think it's entirely possible that someone was interested in this story, and even offered him money, um, whether he refused it or he fell apart. Like this, <laughs> Producers are like the flakiest individuals that i've ever come across in the entertainment industry like they'll be like we'll do this we'll do that and then they'll be like we're not doing that we're not doing this <laughs> or just like ghost you um so i don't believe I, I do believe that someone came to him with this and it probably just fell apart or maybe he really didn't want to do it i got no reason to doubt him that's fine but here's the kicker Arno would indeed give the thumbs up to a miniseries chronicling his life's escapades, but under the production of Bavaria Film Studios, a German company. While my quibble over the artistic merits of US blockbusters, but I dare say it is a universally acknowledged truth that German cinema is fucking horrible. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I realize I don't think I've seen any German movies. And I have seen, like, movies from other countries. So, I don't know. Supposed to be good German movies. Arno's supposed dedication to filmic excellence could not really have been a significant factor if he turned down Hollywood, but at the same time greenlit Bavaria Film Studios for a much smaller payout at that. Although I remain open to this being proven incorrect, this consistency nudges my suspicion that there never was a Hollywood offer in the first place. I then mentioned a couple of other famous German crimes, curious to hear his thoughts on cases other than his own. Unfortunately, he didn't display much interest in the broader world of true crime, thus I quickly shelved the topic. However, the question of paramount importance was still lurking in the shadows, unbeknownst even to me. What is that question? You see, I was under the false pretense that we had nearly checked off all of the essential subjects for our, from our list, leaving no room for any surprise game-changer. But oh boy, was I wrong. Everything we talked about converged on a question seemingly so trivial and unassuming, yet it would become the most important one. If you had the chance to ask Arno one final question, what would it be? What would be a worthy conclusion to this topic? I aim to end on a positive note, so I offered Arno one final conclusive chance to em emphasize his remorse. Thus, I landed on the closing query, taking into account all that has transpired. Do you believe becoming Scrooge McDuck was ultimately worth it? This inquiry made Arno giggle, and then he said, There are questions better left unanswered. I mean, how could it not be worth it? He was on, before his criminal escapades, he was on the verge of suicide. He was super depressed. And then he did something that he found interesting. He hurt a few people. He terror he caused a huge amount, I'm sure, in like police time and money. But then he and he went to prison for a while. But it seems in prison he got the treatment that he needed for his depression and the the toxic brain stuff, uh, the paint stuff. And then I it seems to me he's in a much better place now, thanks to all of this, than he was before it all happened. So, I <laughs> think the answer has to be yes, and he seems to rather like his celebrity. So, yeah. Yeah. TikTok, it's all a mock. Hold on a second. That's it? No, not a single death? For heaven's sake, Dennis, you subjected us to a veritable saga about explosions for three eternal hours. I think, I can't remember, I've, I've stopped the camera multiple times, um, so I don't have an accurate clock of how long this episode is. I think it's more than three hours. 
right? I'm looking at the time. We're actually three minutes into this section. I had a little break. I've had many little breaks. And not one single soul found themselves scattered to the four winds. Well, yeah. This is quite a funny story, actually. See, I originally proposed a script covering a different, non-violent incident, a spectacle of fraud and manipulation that stripped a French noble family of their wealth and fortune. However, Simon instructed me to zero in on our typical cash crim murder formula instead. <laughs> yeah, I did, because it's like, those are the ones that no people will watch. So I supplied him with a medley of other suggestions, harvested from the comment section of earlier episodes. Without a moment's hesitation, Simon confidently selected the only other item from the list which explicitly stated it would not fit the time-honored formula either. The ways of the Lord are inscrutable. I don't know, look, you know earlier I said you have that, like, that gut feeling when you've got experience doing something. My experience is YouTube, like finding topics that work on YouTube. And I stand by the fact that this is just looking at the title of this one and the pitch from Dennis, this is much more interesting than the French noble family and their manipulated fraud and well, I'm like, even that I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember what Dennis had just told me about it. And in my mind, that's like, it's not interesting. Maybe it is, but it's not interesting enough to click on. Whereas this one, I was just like, that is. And maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe this won't get a lot of views, but I got the feeling this is a good one. However, people of swirled speculations that Arno, had he been left to his own devices for a little longer, could have eventually arrived at the path of death. Entering the highly speculative territory again, one could probably imagine a Scrooge McDuck beyond that final boundary. You surely recall the ominous correspondence penned by Arno, dispatched a few weeks prior to his capture. Some of you may argue that Arno, who had earned himself a reputation for acting on his threats, should be taken at face value when he announced an act of blood. Yet I don't think so. For a plethora of reasons. Firstly, presumed innocent until proven guilty. We cannot condemn someone for deeds he may or may not have committed in a fictional situation that we made up. Yet, beyond that obvious rationale, my intuition veers towards a positive image of Arno after all. Look, the Arno Funke of today is in fact the opposite of danger. Though I laid out some inconsistencies that could have put the authenticity of his remorse into question, I can vow without a doubt in my mind that he had left prison as a reformed person, someone I would trust with my children if I had any. While I acknowledge the subjectivity of this impression, he strikes me as someone who has finally achieved inner tranquility after a desperate quest that led him through one dark place after another. His aura radiates a sense of calmness and equilibrium, reminiscent of a Buddhist monk serenely enveloped in the bliss of Nirvana with a subtle smile that conveys deep and inaccessible enlightenment. In less poetic words, he's just a dude making art nowadays. In fact, he has lived an innocent life for far longer than I have. But even in previous times, when queried about the risks his actions posed, Arno's responses were nothing short of compassionate and genuine. He vehemently rejected the idea of disregarding the paramount value of human life, and the mere thought of playing fast and loose with anyone's well-being filled him with a visible revulsion on multiple occasions. Either he was telling the truth, or he is the best actor to have ever lived. Having watched hours of his reality TV appearances, I can confidently assert that he was not the latter. <laughs> there are many... Is reality, I guess reality TV does is, is a bit of acting, isn't it? Because it's, it's always a bit fake. There are so many perspectives to look at this. Some may view Arno as a troubled egomaniac, evading murder merely to diminish his own punitive consequences, never truly caring for anyone but himself. Others might see him as a desperate soul, battling depression, resorting to heavy artillery against his inner demons, yet remaining steadfast to his core moral principles. Some might paint Arno as an unsung genius, his brilliance wasted due to a less-than-fortunate start in life. 
Alternatively, one might see him as a showman, craving the limelight, or as an individual finding joy in public attention after years of loneliness. Seeking the glow of fame is not inherently suspicious of anything. I feel Simon would agree with this. Of course I would agree with this. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like, what's Simon's game? <laughs> what's he trying to do? <laughs> Spread misinformation? No, it's just, I, I like making things and getting paid to make things. <laughs> It's nice. Uh, I think with this, as I've said many times, I don't think it's one of these things. I think it's several of these things together. Like, it's not black and white. It's not yes or no. It's this and this and this and that. A little bit of each. I started this episode with a bold statement. Crime has a lot of faces, yet upon closer inspection, most of them look terrifyingly human. Arno is a prime example of this. Though he did horrible things that I could never endorse, I do feel a sense of understanding and empathy. Though you're free to disagree, I wrote this episode a negative 2 out of 10 on the Pedro Lopez scale of evil. Again, blowing up buildings is not acceptable, even those that are devoid of human life. There is undeniable moral guilt in property damage, extortion, and threatening to kill people if your demands are not met, even if you never planned on following through with it. But Arno, in my personal opinion, doesn't fit the scum that would usually cover, not in the slightest. He has earned his spot on this channel, not by being a bloodthirsty monster, but due to the glimpse behind the veil of human nature that his story offered. I entirely agree, and I've not met the dude, but I like the fact that this episode hasn't been filled with blood and horror. It's a nice break for me, even though I have almost spent the entire day recording this episode with breaks and lunch and the other little tasks. I've recorded nothing else today. This has been my entire project. <laughs> in 2011, more than a decade after his release, Arno had arranged his final meeting with Michael Delecki by the railway tracks. But instead of money, they would exchange anecdotes from their intertwined past as well as a conciliatory handshake. Delecki, who had retired in 2008 due to partial hearing loss, was evidently willing to forgive Arno by separating the crimes of Scrooge McDuck from the person that now stood in front of him. I see both wisdom and beauty in this attitude, and I think this image serves as a perfect closing shot. Dismembered appendices. Solving crimes is hard. Here at the Casual Criminalist, we have a long-standing tradition of shitting all over the police, and it is ad admittedly an entertaining habit. Yeah, I mean, when they do bad jobs, but in this one, I felt the low- When are you gonna resign? I, w I was on the police's side with this one. This guy was competent and good at not getting caught, and the police ended up catching him and did a pretty good job overall, I would say. In all fairness, there are countless valid reasons for doing so, ranging from poor judgment calls in specific investigations to broader systemic flaws. Intense debates surrounding police misconduct have been forefront in numerous societies in recent years, and rightfully so. As an individual of Middle Eastern descent, I carry my share of skepticism, courtesy of the all-too-frequent random police checks that I've encountered. And as a regular participant in protests against right-wing extremism, environmental degradation, and pseudoscientific ideologies, good for you, I've had also had my fair share of less peaceful interactions with law enforcement. Although I live by uh, don't hate the player, hate the game philosophy, rest assured that I have no personal inclination to paint an unmerited rosy picture of the police. With that being said, let me highlight that Inspector Delecki is in fact a f***ing genius, easily on par with Arno. I feel that this... <laughs> You misspelled genius on purpose, Dennis. Uh, I feel like this episode might have led you to... <laughs> Wait, do I not know how to spell genius? Look up. No, I know how to spell genius. <laughs> That's gotta be a joke, right? Because 
I, I genuinely believe that Dennis has better English than I do. I feel like this episode might have led you to another verdict on his skill as an investigation. As an investigator, a misperception I need to rectify. You see, the German clearance rate for violent crimes barely exceeds 57%, which seems surprisingly low, but still ranks rather high in international comparison. Delecki significantly surpassed this benchmark, yet even the greatest investigators will have their failures every once in a while. It's statistically inevitable. His investigation into Arno's case might not have led to the desired outcome, with Arno's capture resulting mostly from luck rather than strategic sleuthing. Thus, stating that Delecki lost the duel against Arno is probably correct. However, this does not mean that he was incompetent in any way, and he certainly did not deserve the media storm that publicly humiliated him for years. Consider Sherlock Holmes, the archetype of a perfect investigator, and even he couldn't fully crank the case in nine out of his original 56 short stories. Really? Sherlock Holmes had unsolved ones? I can't, was there really 56? I feel like I've read quite a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories. There are 56 of them. This episode contained not one, but two prodigious minds. Personally, I do not think Delecki ever truly blundered. He was consistently just one step behind a marginally smarter opponent who never gave him any opportunity to gain the upper hand. It's like playing chess against Magnus Carlsen, but he goes first and is free to change the rules at his discretion. You're playing Magnus Carlsen, you're going to get destroyed anyway. There is no shame in losing such a game. Inspector Delecki has made his mark on many high-profile investigations, solving cases with even worse odds thanks to his brilliance. There's a good chance I will retell some of them in the future if business daddy allows it. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Let's see how this giant episode does, and we'll go from there, shall we, Dennis? Explosions are fun and barely illegal. Look, I'm certainly not a lawyer, so please don't take this as legal, as legal advice. But while leafing through the reports on Arno's trial, I couldn't help but chuckle at Germany's oddly lenient regulations on explosions. <laughs> Actually, let me quote the law directly. Any person who causes an explosion other than by releasing nuclear energy, namely by means of explosives, and thereby endangers the life or limb of another person or property of significant value to others, shall be liable for to a custodial sentence of not less than one year. Well, that is not less than one year, so it could be very, very long. So, if I'm reading this right, you could technically have a blast, haha, as long as no one gets hurt and no significant property value is harmed. Oh, okay. But then it doesn't specify for that situation. And even if they are, one year of incarceration could be all it takes to square things off. Oh, and in case you're curious about the nuclear part, what well, we've got that covered too, again, a direct quote. Any person who causes an explosion by releasing nuclear energy and thereby negligently endangers the life or limb of another person or property of significant value should be liable to a custodial sentence from one to ten years. <laughs> what did you yourself a nuclear bomb? Uh, ten years maximum. So a nuke gets you a year too. That's just insane, unless they hold you accountable for the thousands of other laws you'd violate in the process, which is probably how it would work now that I think about it. Exactly. <laughs> They're gonna be like, yeah, you also murdered like 50,000 people, so uh, gavel's coming down on that one. The Scrooge case is considered among Germany's best-known crime stories, and the available sources are correspondingly extensive. Yet it is a massive misconception to think that more sources automatically means more clarity. Now, oftentimes it can mean, like, just more blurriness and more false facts. Each new source offered slight discrepancies to the previous ones concerning both minute details and substantial elements. The deeper I drilled, the less certain I became about several aspects while slowly losing my sanity. Take, for instance, Arno's autobiography. On page 50, Arno confidently claims that he did not have to worry about police helicopters in 1988 because there were none at the time. Yet in a televised documentary, he recounted the distinct drone of a helicopter's blades hovering overhead. The same documentary also proposed that Inspector Delecki was called 
called onto the Hamburg bombing case only after receiving Arno's letter, a point that directly contradicts several reputable newspaper articles asserting his immediate involvement. Adding to the confusion, Delecki claimed in another interview that Arno had bagged a million marks in 1988, a figure that in fact was only half that size. The list could go on for another hour. I managed to reconcile some discrepancies, but only because I detected them. It is possible, if not likely, that other inconsistencies have slipped through unnoticed. If you have any insider knowledge beyond the contents of this video, feel free to let me know. We may pin a comment highlighting correlations and additional information, as we have occasionally done so on previous episodes. In examining these accounts, we must also recognize that each participant has their personal stake in the story. Arno naturally is inclined to depict himself in a positive moral light, especially because each of his words were subject to a major court case back in the day. This is why I tried to rely on his biography as rarely as possible. Similarly, the police version of events strives to issue any hint of their alleged incompetence, which is also fair to some degree. Truth is a subjective concept by nature, and uh, as I've mentioned before, even eyewitnesses are significantly less reliable than one might expect. Yeah, it comes up often. Please also note that I did not record the interview with Arno in any way, as agreed upon. Therefore, I wrote it down from memory about 45 minutes after our exchange had ended. Some nuances might have been lost in the process. Lastly, I have trimmed this story drastically, all caps, underlines, by skimming over or completely omitting several events. This was necessary to keep the episode below the 15-hour threshold. Remember, there were more than 20 attempted money handovers in total, and I presented only five of them directly. The pace of events may therefore appear skewed or stretched at some points. Leaving out the miniature submarine side quest or the one with the remote-controlled lorry was a hard decision to make, but I feel like this video was way too long already. <laughs> It's nearly five o'clock and I started this this morning. I also left out some important characters for the same reasons, such as Inspector Martin Texter, who had played quite a big part in the investigation, as well as the myriad of so-called profilers who have successfully muddied the waters throughout the years. Simon asked for a maximum of 10,000 words. But here at Crash from last week, you're 350%. Was this 35,000 words long? That's half a book! I read half a book today, aloud! <laughs> Oh my god, and that's finally the end of today's episode. I enjoyed the sh** out of it, Dennis. I hope everyone here right at the end did as well. Thank you for being here. If you're listening to this as a podcast, please leave us a review. These episodes take, well, Dennis an extraordinary amount of time, and Jen, who edits them, an extraordinary amount of time, and me a medium-length amount of time. And uh, thanks for being here. I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.